course, I don't have any. I haven't had my first beer yet. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to dry up today myself a little bit. I told you I've been off of work a few days. It's the Heavy Hole Podcasts, and I'm Big Will, a.k.a. Uncle Buck, my co-host this evening, Dave Gladding. How you doing, Dave? Doing great, man. Still uh, still drinking coffee, no beer yet, so we'll see how this goes. Yeah, I too, we didn't plan this out. I too am drinking my coffee and have not had any alcohol yet today. We're recording early, um, so this is, this is an interesting experiment in the, in the Heavy Hole podcast culture. We're just going to, five yeah. minutes in, we're going to start arguing with each other about something unrelated to what we're talking about yeah it's, and, uh, we're gonna we're gonna need a drink <laughs> <laughs> no nah, man uh dave how you been though honestly what's going on man what's going on over there in, in your world uh let me just got a haircut got my beard trimmed is not metal good. not metal i told i told you yeah. i gave up we were talking about six months ago i actually i got back from the exsanguinated tour that we did in last june and you know when you get I don't know if you know this, but like when your hair is thinning, I don't know that your hair is just like I'm. I'm pretty much bald. Like getting a haircut at this point is just kind of a waste of money. You know what I mean? I could do the, the comb over thing, but that's not me. Um, but but you know, but when my hair was like still pretty thin, but I was trying to fake it with the crew cut thing. Uh, when you let that go for like two or three weeks without cutting it, you just get this like bald clown kind of thing going on, man. Like it wasn't it wasn't a, Jack Nicholson can kind of pull it off, but not me. So I just said, that's when I just started shaving the head, stay, shaving my head every week, man. Enough is enough. You know, with the, I took my uncle to the barbershop yesterday. It was the same barbershop I went to for like a decade. And I was, I was like, sorry, guys, just, you know, I'm just driving him today. I'm not getting a cut, you know. So, Your uncle needs a designated driver for getting a haircut. Uh, yeah, he gets a little excited. <laughs> the old haircuts. He's he's got other problems, man. He can, the last thing you need is him behind the wheels. Trust me, man. Um, I can barely I can I, I can barely handle him behind a phone. You're uh you're a good nephew. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're we're not blood related, and I remind him of that all the time. He's a neighbor. He's a okay. he's, he's ah, an okay. elderly neighbor figure, elderly statesman of uh, Huntington Station. So you can imagine what that might entail. Uh, yeah, shout, shout to big people like that growing up where I just called it. They were like my aunt or uncle, but they we weren't actually related, but we just knew each other for so long. Yeah, he might be in witness relocation. So I, I feel I feel like calling him uncle in public is doing him a favor, too. You know, it throws throws the trail off a little bit. Um, been trying Good to get man. him to do an interview, but he doesn't want to do it. He's very. Yeah, um, uh, it comes from comes from the Italian street culture in Queens. Uh, I'll just leave it there. I, I didn't see nothing. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much, man. Um, speaking of street culture, dying fetus. I just saw this today. I don't know if you're aware of this, Dave. Dying fetus touring with not five mediocre metal bands, like metalcore, deathcore bands. <laughs> you know, I, I did just see that this morning, and yes. I got to say it was the first time in like easily 15 years where i've been like holy shit i would go to that dying fetus show i love dying fetus and there's not like four logos of metalcore bands that i'm not familiar with because i'm too old underneath their logo this time it's um it's it's death metal and, and grind themed bands that are i'm still too old to be familiar with but i am because i do this podcast no listen um and shout out to all the bands that have toured with dying fetus the last few years you get get yours all right i'm not taking any money away from terror by making a joke all right those guys we're punching up here dying fetus full of hell 200 stab wounds cruelty 
And that 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 logo on the bottom there that looks like it's uh, Psycho Frame DC um, doing a doing a big old tour there. Uh, looks like Psycho Frame and Full of Hell are alternating a few dates there. Not coming to New York, not coming to downstate New York, I should say. Not coming anywhere yeah. near uh, Long Island at all. They're they're hitting Albany, which it might be a little too far for me to go, depending on the day. But we'll see. Well, the New Jersey. Is uh, I'm, I'm looking right. It's I believe it was Starland Ballroom. They're probably hitting. Maybe that was another. I don't want to misspeak. Yeah, they're doing Sayerville Starland Ballroom in New Jersey, which is probably an easier drive than Albany. Not necessarily a very convenient drive from Long Island. Uh, well, I was kind of hoping this one might, you know, hit. Uh, um, it's a little big for AMH, but I, I don't know. And then AMH, I think they, they might be uh, under renovation now or something. I don't want to misspeak, man. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, go, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, I feel like if, if uh, Hatebreed could play AMH, uh, the Dying Fetus probably could. But I think that might have also they might have been doing that because they were doing, like, that residency thing. Well, Hatebreed, like, sold out three days in a row. And pri- I'm going to go here. Probably could have sold out an additional two more days. I'm going to say yep. that with the right curating of the support acts because the way they did it was crazy um you know so i i'm gonna say that hate breed probably could have sold out amh like another two days dying fetus could probably have a residence at amityville music hall um the same way that, that they did but this is a tour uh, you know i was hoping for maybe a brooklyn date or something like that but regardless starland ballroom isn't that far off uh dying fetus and full of hell right there's 200 stab wounds cruelty i mean that's 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 a solid bill bro and it gets even crazier, dude. I saw that then like a few hours after I saw that, um, Sanguasugabog posts this, uh, what was it, in Michigan, I think it's going down. Let me see. Where is this? Hold on a second. Uh, dying fetus, full of hell, and uh, 200 stab wounds, cruelty, that tour intersects with Sanguasugabog and Jesus Peace, who are going to be on tour uh, May the 7th, 2024, in Pontiac, Michigan, at the Crowfoot Ballroom. So that's pretty nuts right there, man. Um, I'm going to tell my father-in-law to go to that one. Peeling Flesh and Gag also going to be on that bill. But, yeah, just, I mean, those were two tours. And, not you know, not for nothing. Look, Sanguasugabog and Jesus Peace, that's a tough tour. I like Jesus Peace. Not a bad band. Um, Never heard them. Uh, worth a shot. Give it a, give it a listen, yeah. Dave. Uh, Sanguasugabag and Jesus, that's a, that's a great tour package. And then this dying fetus and full of hell, 200 and cruelty. It all, it all convenes in Pontiac, Michigan of all places, man. So, uh, that's going to be crazy. Um, at the, uh, at the crow foot there. So that, that is pretty nuts. There's another one, Dave. And I, and, and specifically I'm bringing this up because you were, um, you're here. Let me, uh, l- let me, let me find this. It's, uh, regurgitant. Well, well, you're gonna you're gonna know why. I mean, I I think because this is like right up your alley. It's regurgitation. Um, twenty. I want to say twenty fifth. I'm I'm trying to punch it up here, man. I'm getting ahead of myself. But it's they're playing uh, Tales of Necrophilia. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah with like scattered remnants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hold on a second here, man. This is I I should have had this punched up before, but I got a little too excited about the whole um. Uh, dying fetus thing, man. But uh, yeah, it was regurgitation and scattered remnants. That's kind of crazy to begin with, and then the idea that it's like a uh, kind of a throwback regurgitation 
Tales of Necrophilia. I got it here. It's on Eventbrite. Um, Tales of Necrophilia, 25th anniversary show with Scattered Remnants and Syphilic. Are you familiar with Syphilic, Dave? I've, I'm not. I've seen the name around, but I've not uh, listened to them. Same here. I'm going to give them a shot. Um, but Saturday, January the 27th, um, that's taking place at No Class in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, Scattered Remnants and Regurgitation, Tales of Necrophilia, 25th Anniversary Show. Uh, and, and, and of, of course, in Cleveland, Ohio, kind of um, uh, uh, legendary uh, storied ground in, in, in death metal history, especially for these two bands. Scattered Remnants returning to Ohio. I think there's an old Ohio Death Fest flyer with Scattered Remnants on there. We'd have to... We have to go back and Probably ask those yeah. guys. Yeah, I think we we did for the listeners. If you're fairly new to the podcast, we did a whole um, extended episode where we interviewed three former members of Scattered Remnants uh, about the heyday of the band. It's an extended marathon episode from several years ago. Um, if you're interested in the, in the kind of lore and behind the scenes of the old days of Scattered Remnants, uh, got to get the regurgitation guys in one day. Uh, that would be sick too. Um, those guys are. Those guys have some history too. They're, excuse me, they're in a lot of a lot of bands. Yeah, yeah. Um, but listen, Dave, we got a couple more bands that we're going to talk about. Um, you and I, I, you were trying to get out of upstate, and then I, I purposely caused all the snow to to pile drive off of a roof in front of your truck, so you couldn't leave upstate. And we're going to talk upstate death metal again tonight. You're stuck. Uh, I did it. I, I also put sugar in your gas tank. Sorry, but now we got to talk upstate death metal. It's kind of it's kind of like that movie Misery almost now. Only we just talk death metal demos. <laughs> um, be, uh, that wouldn't be too bad. Yeah, take turns tying each other to a bed and just being like, "Let me talk to you about clit torture." <laughs> that that took a turn for the weird right there, Dave. Hold on a second, man. I'm gonna put you in the penalty box for that one, and we're gonna talk to Scotty Heath from Tank Crimes Records, who's also got some tours coming up he wants to talk about, man. All right, Dave, I'll check you later. Check, check. This is Big Will from the Heavy Hole Podcast, and I'm here with Scotty Heath of Tank Crimes Records. Welcome to the podcast, and thank you for your time. Hey, Big Will. Thanks for having me on, man. Thanks for the invite. I really appreciate it. It's happy to be here. Uh, of course, man. We're psyched to have you here. Um, we've we've talked about and and with a few of the uh, the artists that you've uh, released albums and EPs of uh, all these years, and it's great to have kind of like the man behind the um, the man with the plan here. So. Uh, as I told you, we're going to start kind of right at the beginning, like I always do. And the same question I ask everybody, are you from a musical family? Anyone in your upbringing that steered you towards rock and heavy music or anyone in, in your family that played an instrument, anything like that? Yeah. Uh, my dad uh, is a bass player. And my dad was in a band in the late 60s when he was just when he was still in high school in uh, Michigan, outside of Detroit. And uh, he was in a band called HP and the Grassroot Movement, R-O-U-T-E. 
And uh, they actually did a single on uh, Bob Seger's Hideout Records. Huh. And the other single they did was put out, this really dates rock and roll in the late 60s. Uh, the other 45 that they put out was put out by the Teen Center in town, the Berkeley Bloomfield Teen Center, which that's where they would play a lot. They would do like three one-hour sets of covers at like the teen club for kids to like dance and hang out and stuff like that. And their first record was actually put out by one of those teen clubs. And I, um, my dad, um, got, he, he went to college and stopped playing in bands. But before I get past that, um, HP of HP in the grassroot movement became kind of a celebrity in his own right. The man's name is Harry Perry. And he roller skates around Venice Beach with a turban on playing his guitar. He's got this swirl guitar and he's like a Venice Beach icon. And he's been in like movies like Fletch, like tons of movies. Like when they do the opening montage, like at Venice, they'll show like the surfers, the skaters, the muscle beach guys. And they'll show Harry fucking Perry roller skating down the boardwalk, playing his guitar out of a little like... um He's got like a little amp on his belt and he wears a big turban. And uh, he's also famous in like Grateful Dead parking lot crowds and stuff like that. And um, I've got a chance to meet him a couple times. Uh, and uh, it was a cool experience because I got him to go out of he's like in character when he's on the boardwalk. And I told him, you know, my I'm Craig Heath's son and they haven't spoken since they were kids, I actually kind of like update my dad on what Harry Perry's up to. And uh, it was just really cool experience. And he's still a guy and, and he's still around. And um, it's just kind of like this interesting factoid from my dad's childhood, really, because I kind of carried the musical torch in the family picking up because my dad uh, went to school and uh, started a family, and my dad owned uh, owned bars and restaurants when I was a kid, and that was the business he got into, but he didn't play much music. My dad would, like, if we'd go to a bar and he had some friends playing, my dad would be the guy who'd maybe jump up for a cover song or something like that. You know, I remember him taking me into a few bars when I was a kid, but uh, a lot of the musical part of my family was when I was really young because my dad became successful in the bar industry and he kind of got absorbed in his work. But that is, that is the historic past. So I grew up listening to all my dad's records and my dad likes not like the sixties hippie rock stuff. He likes like Montrose, Edgar winter, uh, that's, that's my dad's shit. Wow. Um, okay. And also, I mean, you said Bob, like Bob Seger's record label. Yeah. Oh yeah. There's... Glad you brought that back <sighs> up. Cause I don't want to pass it up. You know, I'm from Michigan, so we all call Bob Seger. That's uncle Bob. If you are from Michigan <laughs> Yeah. and, uh, I've never met uncle Bob, but a very, very cool thing is that yes. Uh, my dad's band put out a 45 on, hideout records and another thing that's really cool is after bob seeger later in his career after he had finished off all his record contracts with capital i believe he bought back his own catalog so um hmm. 
he's once all every Bob Seger recording is back at home on Hideout Records. And um, I remember having the 45s of my dad's band when I was young because I had one of those Mickey Mouse uh, turntables, just like a little plug in, like a bedroom one, like mm-hmm. kind of like what like those Crosleys are now. But it had like Mickey Mouse on the back. And I really remember playing my dad's record. And it, it's even like early memories of me being into like mixtapes and DJing and stuff, because I can remember like slowing down the record and speeding up the record and like getting different probably the first doom metal song i ever heard was my dad's 45 played at 33 and i didn't know that it was like a genre i was like this is cool at the, and my dad would be like that's wrong and i'm like it, but it could be right <laughs> you know wow wow so man. that's really cool and i'm yeah. personally a massive it may just be from being from michigan but in general, I'm a massive Bob Seger fan. Really, really like the guy. Celebrate his whole catalog. Wow. wow. So I imagine a lot of that and things like that are a big inspiration for you to, to be doing this record label and have this DIY ethos to it. It's kind of cool. It's like when I started doing all this stuff, you know, the record label kind of happened on accident and by necessity, like so many, um, so many DIY punk and underground labels start Mm -hmm. so it was more like i had kind of you know i moved from michigan to san francisco when i was 18 i i was like a kid who wanted to get the hell out of my small town and san francisco seemed just like the coolest fucking place in the world and i just one way ticketed it out there and so reconnecting with my family as i got older is when I realized it was the parallels and how cool it was and how me and my dad shared these experiences. And like I said, I've, uh, I'm real close with my dad now as a grown man. And I kind of carried the torch, um, you know, that he had kicked off as a, as a kid and left behind for, for business and family. And I figured out how to make music, my business. Wow. Um, and my, my family's the, the, the guys on the label. <laughs> That that's yeah, and I want to get to that later because you do keep a tight roster, and I know you work with um uh, some people as a, as a roadie and that sort of thing. But before we get too far ahead, something I got uh, quickly. I always credit my research, and I want to shout out um the This Is Revolution podcast and the As Seen on the Streets podcast, both of which you've appeared on in the past as part of my oh, research. Oh, that's really cool. You checked out the As Seen on the Streets. Yeah, that's I, that's a, was a really cool one to do because it's it wasn't those guys aren't from punk or metal. Yeah, I, I love that part, too, because um, it kind of just puts you in the mix with whoever else their roster of, of guests would be. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I really like that one because they were just more they they didn't even know. Besides the one guy who's my friend who is on that podcast, they didn't know a lot about like the music that I'm into. So they were more um, into like the whole operation, like how DIY works and shit like that. So that was a lot of fun. Yeah, with, without- I will definitely. I still talk to Freddie, my friend from that podcast, all the time. He'll be stoked that this came up. Oh yeah, of course. Well, I, I always try to do my due diligence. My thing is, I don't want guests repeating the same story that they told some other, you know, podcast over and over again. So, um, and I always want to credit my research. Uh, you yeah, know, nice. So, so, um, what I'm getting at is, I know, I believe you said something to the effect of you grew up in a more urban area in Michigan and then moved to a more rural part part of town. Uh, once you had grown up a little bit, um, yeah, it was, it was from, 
So I was just, I was just basically all of like Detroit is such a massive city and it's really hollowed out, especially when I was growing up in the eighties. And, uh, my, my dad and his family were a product of like the white flight of the sixties and stuff. And, and kind of were like, and excuse me, we're in those suburbs right around Detroit. But, uh, but it's not that big of space. Like, you know, an hour drive in any direction from the center of Detroit will take you is just all full of different suburbs. So the, what you're saying is true, but I wouldn't say it was an urban environment. I would just say I grew up closer to Detroit until I was 12. And then I moved out to the fucking sticks. So it was a big cultural difference for me. Um, I just don't want it. I certainly was not in Detroit. Okay. It was kind of in a, a more hip suburb than the dirt road farm town I moved out to, <laughs> for, to for high school and stuff, you know. So take take me on the road from you moving from um uh from an area that had a little something going on to an area that didn't have much going on, getting into um the the harder and more underground music that maybe your dad wasn't even into uh, tuned on to, uh you know, and then and then eventually what inspires you to want to move out to California? Well, a uh, real quick one of the things you said I want to I want to hit on before I forget. And you were say when you just brought up my dad, something I'll never forget that my dad said that I could not understand as a boy and now certainly understand 100 percent. And I know you're going to nod along with this. I remember getting in, getting into like, um, you know, the doors and Jimi Hendrix and the Beatles and stuff as a, as an early teenager and being like, oh, there's all this killer music from the late 60s. It was so huge and massive culturally and all this stuff. And I, my dad didn't have the, a lot of those records. My dad had all the Jimi Hendrix records, which I still have in my collection. But my dad didn't have like the Doors and the Beatles and stuff. And when I was discovering that on my own, I didn't understand how he did it. Because it, it, his, he had a big record collection. It seemed like he covered a lot of the stuff. And he said to me, Scott that's the shit that was on the radio. Like I liked those songs. I I'm aware of all those songs, but that's not the, that's not the music I was seeking out. And that's aren't the records I was buying. That was more basic or something, you know? And when my dad said that I did not get it as a boy, but now I totally get it. And it's totally is another thing I share with my dad, you know, like that's like, if I had a son that was like, dad, do you like Metallica? You know? And I'd be like, well, yeah, but you know, I didn't, it's, it's something like that. And I really got that. My dad wasn't just scratching the surface as a music fan and, and that, and how that paralleled with, with a lot that I did, you know? So moving out to the rural area, Brighton is the town, the town I grew up where I graduated high school. It's kind of like a proper big ass suburb now, just from like urban sprawl, you know. But when I moved there in 1990, it was dirt roads. You know, I mean, I graduated from a high school. It was the only high school in town. Um, and the the big cultural difference was the first music that I really like dug into on my own 
And I feel like it was the first music that helped give me like empathy and also like feel like dissent against like the system, you know, like some of my first like punk tendencies was from hip hop music. And I was, I was all in staying up late, recording shit off the radio, um, big on hip hop music. And it, it really, it really helped shape me at a, at an early age. And when I moved out, to the rural area man and also like being bad was cooler closer <laughs> to the city you know i was already smoking cigarettes and drinking and getting into trouble and stuff like that and man i felt like i moved into the fucking land of the boy scouts it took me <laughs> an entire year to find my friends when i got there you know mm. but that was just a huge difference was that I lost the group of friends that I was exploring music with. And I was kind of on my own for a while before I kind of hooked up with other friends. And then those are huge years, 12, 13, 14, you know, like everything's changing around you, you no matter what's going on at home or at school or whatever. Um, You're just, you know, going through puberty and adolescence and, the difficulty of all that and some of the excitement and fucking terror. And uh, so I don't know if moving there pushed me more towards rock, but by the time I got there and settled in now Nirvana and the red hot chili peppers are the biggest bands in the world, you know? Um, So I don't know if the move took me there, but certainly no one was listening to rap music. In fact, I remember when like Snoop Dogg came out and that was such a huge, massive cultural album that Dr. Dre, the chronic and the Snoop Dogg album afterwards. And that was the first fucking time I heard rap music playing out of a car. And I'd <laughs> lived in this town for like a year and a half, mm-hmm. you know? And all of a sudden I was like, Oh, people are listening to rap music now because I mean, I was like, getting called a wigger on the bus and shit, you know, like I had kids pull my headphones off, you know, rap is crap, all this stuff. It was really like, it, I just, it was weird. And it just added to all the adjustments of, of, you know, just life changing at that age, like I was saying, but then that gets me in, you know, now I'm getting into rock and smoke start smoking a lot of weed getting into psychedelic stuff. And uh, I just started opening up to everything around 10th grade. You know, Um, I'm listening to jam bands. I went and saw the, I got to go see the Grateful Dead with Jerry fucking Garcia when I was a kid. Um, Loving all that hippie stuff that was so huge then. Um, All, you know, Nirvana. Honestly, Nirvana might be the only band that holds up out of like Nirvana, Pearl Jam. I I remember in high school actually thinking Pearl Jam was the better band from Nirvana. And I I try to revisit some of that stuff now. And I'm like, man, I don't, if you think about the cultural relevance about those two, you know, I can't believe they were, they were neck and neck, Mm. you know, Mm. when I was, when I was 16. And so, but then that, so a lot of it then is just pop culture. Uh, Nirvana lends itself to Green Day. And I kind of hit, like a lot of people my age, hit the ground running with Green Day and immediately dug deeper. And I went right from Green Day right to Rancid, you know, and then right from Rancid 
to fucking straight seeing a DIY band move the tables out of the way at a coffee shop and set up and play a show. And that was like Green Day played at the where that arena where the Detroit Red Wings play. Rancid played at St. Andrews Hall, which is a place that's still there, very important to Detroit and a place where I go with bands on tour these days, which is so cool to me when we're actually there uh, because it was pretty magical to me when I was a teenager. And um, so in those quick few years in high school, I go from listening to only hip hop to going to underground punk shows. And then wanting to, and then I always knew, I always felt bigger than my town. What's really interesting about my town is a lot of people felt like I did. Like, I, I know I, I'm not in, in, in touch with as many people from back home as, as some people are, but um, so many of my friends from back then got the fuck out of town too. Like it really, they really didn't, not we didn't all end up in the same places but i don't know maybe there's a study i can read one day about which towns are more susceptible to everybody fucking moving to cities but i think it was just kind of like i always liked our town i didn't have a problem with it i mean it it was a way different situation than moving to san francisco just because there was like rednecks around and shit you know and leaving that behind was fucking cool it helped me grow a lot you know, because I got to San Francisco, I'm 18, 19 and the whole world's in front of me. And I didn't, um, I didn't think I would end up staying in the Bay area. Like my whole life. I mean, I just moved up. I'm two hours away in the foothills of the Sierras now, but I just moved out of the Bay a year and a half ago. And I'm still, you know, still have a, have a foot firmly planted in, in Oakland. Um, but yeah, when I moved to San Francisco, when I was a teenager, I did not know I was going to be starting a whole life there, but that's how it ended up. Wow. Uh, there's a lot there, man. Something I want to add. No, well, before we get too far ahead too, what age do you start playing drums? I don't start playing drums till I'm like 23 or 24. Oh, so that happens well, that well happens, into your move yeah, to California. Okay. You know, I'm living in San Francisco and I'm going, you know, and it, like I was saying, all my different musical interests, like it was so cool because everything was going on. And San Francisco is a small town. Like it's only seven miles by seven miles. For years, I never even went across the bay to Oakland or Berkeley or anything because there was just so much going on right there for me to like adventure every day. But I was so now I'm going to um, going to punk shows, going to, I'm, I'm fully back into hip hop at this time. And there's a huge hip hop and like turntable scene going on. There's a whole resurgence of hip hop in the late nineties that San Francisco was a big part of. Um, I have roommates that are rappers and DJs and people in punk bands and skateboarders. It was just such a crazy eclectic crew of people. It was like everything I wanted from San Francisco and, um, but for a few years, I'm like doing, I'm chasing girls, I'm skateboarding. Um, I've got a group of friends, but I'm not firmly in any one subculture at the time. I, you can find me at a reggae show as frequently as you can as a punk show. And the reason for that is I had not yet found the true underground. And I feel like before that was when I realized the difference between like going to concerts 
and going to shows. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd been to some D I mentioned, you know, going to like seeing a band play on the floor at the coffee shop or, or, uh, uh the bookstore, some, you know, more DIY shows like that. But until it was a few years of living in San Francisco before I stumbled into this record store mission records where they had bands playing in the back. And that was what, that was what changed me. It was like, bring your own beer into a record store, maybe pay at the door. If someone's there, maybe not. Um, it was fucking sketchy there. There's like people doing hard drugs. And so there's like a thrill of that, even though I'm not into that. And, but really that's, so I'm in San Francisco for a few years before I realized that. And once I see band, once I see myself in the bands, that's what happens then. Then I'm watching a fucking band with like 35 people doing a circle pit around a pole and looking at kids in it for the very first time. I'm like, I can fucking do that. Like that dude is just me. You know, the stage is fucking, you know, ankle high. It's, it's, it's basically a pallet on the floor. It was really just that click moment for me where I was like, you know, this is the DIY underground. And I found it there and I had all these different interests and all this stuff going on. And honestly, I even I I wouldn't say I lost some friends, but there was people that I hung out with all the time that didn't share this int- this direct interest and I really even started hanging out with some different people because I got so I was just all in. Like within within 3-4 months tops of going to my first like BYOB underground DIY show, ask a punk style. I was in, I was totally in. And the reason I was playing drums, this will throw, this one always throws everybody for a loop. I was waiting tables at the busiest restaurant in America, the cheesecake factory at union square in San Francisco at the time. And, uh, that's where I got the name Scotty karate. And, uh, and that um i was like the guy i was like a crust i had like crust punk pants on with like patches and shit all over them and i would be changing like in the locker room and like dudes i worked with would be like that were like um into fashion and stuff would be like asking me like seamstress tips about my crusty patch pants and stuff but that was the busiest restaurant in america i was making really good i mean good money in 2002 i was getting paid like i was making like 100 bucks a shift and getting paid 10 bucks an hour so um and my rent was still cheap i was paying 400 living in san francisco at the time so when i me and a few friends got together and decided to start a band which was my first band deadfall I was the drummer because I was the one who could afford to buy a drum kit. That was the straw I drew. That's great. And that was really it. And I remember like the guys telling me I was going to be the drummer. And then I like hop on the bus on the way home. And like, for the very first time, I'm like, I've always been a tapper tap, tap, tapping with my fingers, with my rings all over my car. I mean, a lot of people do this or whatever, but it's like, 
it's bothered exes how much I tap. My wife doesn't mind it at all. It's probably why I married her, but I can't stop tapping my fingers on stuff. But for the first time after they told me I was going to be the drummer, I'm taking the bus home and I start, I'm like on the bus trying to coordinate like my foot with my hand for the very first time. And I'm just like, okay, yeah, I can do this. I can do this. And I just remember, and this is what I tell people, you know, I don't consider myself a musician. I consider myself a guy who got to play drums because of the style of music I was interested in, where it was just all fast and, 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 um, that was the style. And a lot of my, I, I mean, I don't even really have that great a time, but I could, I could do what was necessary for the bands I played in. But, uh, they just told me, can you count to four? That's how I learned how to play drums. Can you count to four? I'm like, yeah, okay. And it's just like, yeah, count to four. What do I do when I get to four? Go to one again. And then when I, so then that's how I learned like one and two and one and two or one, two, three, four. And then my second question, how do you play fast drums? He goes, can you count to two? Yeah. That was it. Yeah, that yeah. was my drum lesson. Well, that band Deadfall. I did a little research. Um, remember, the other guys from that band were from Peru and Belarus. Yes, we all met in San Francisco, man. Huh. That's what I moved to San Francisco for—to end up in a fucking hardcore band with a Peruvian and a Belarusian. Yeah, it, that that sounds like an interesting story. Is I mean, here in New York, especially uh, in like I'm I'm in the suburbs outside of New York City, but like in Brooklyn, there's tons of people who relocate there from all over and start bands and all because that's where there's there's a lot happening. Is it a similar situation then? You know, in in yeah, in there? yeah. I mean, people are moving. Um, you know, at the time, and I think probably still too, but you know, San Francisco's in a weird place right now, um, because of how expensive it got, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, but definitely at the time, people were just moving, just yeah, like to New York or to Chicago, just moving to a cool fucking city to start making shit happen, you know, to do stuff, like try stuff out. Everyone, you know, everyone I was hanging out with was a, a rapper, or a DJ or a guitar player, or a drummer, or a graffiti artist or a fine artist or a filmmaker, or a documentary maker. Like everyone, um, everyone I was around, even like my coworkers at the other job I had was Ben and Jerry's. And these were like my corporate jobs before I before I went fully punk, <laughs> my Cheesecake Factory, and my Ben and Jerry's jobs. And but even the people I worked with, you know, and we we're doing drugs together and we're like doing like acid and mushrooms together and uh, just like hanging out. But it was definitely just like, I mean, it was everything I wanted. It's a, like a magical time. Uh, it, it, I'm getting old. My memory starts to go. I want to start just like writing things down when I remember it, because huh. now it's I, like I never thought I was going to get old. And here I am trying to remember what I was doing 25 years ago. And uh, I, I have great memories, but I wish there was more of them, you know? Mm, I, but yeah, yeah, all these guys, I we met Mark from Peru. So uh, real quick, our, we meet Mark from Peru. Um, and th he, this says a lot about the time, 1998. I see him on the bus in San Francisco. And uh, I'm wearing there's this great traditional ska band from Los Angeles called Hepcat. And I had just seen them a few nights before at this famous club in SF called Slims, uh, which was owned by Boz Skaggs. And I'm wearing, I'm wearing the t-shirt. 
And this Peruvian guy taps me on the shoulder and is like, oh, you went to that show? I was at that show. So boom, now we're friends. And this is how it'll date it. I go, let me get your phone number. You know, we should meet up before another show. And he goes, I don't have a phone number. Let me get your email. And I go, I don't have an email. (laughs) And that was the cusp. We were at the point where some people weren't getting phone numbers, but we were still at the point where some people didn't have email addresses. Wow. And that's how we met. And we literally like, whoever had to get off the bus first was like, all right, well, I think we like mentioned a couple shows that might've been coming up and we are like, okay, cool. So definitely, I think the next time, um, next time we saw him, uh, I had lived there a little bit longer. So I was with a few friends and he hadn't met that many people yet. And we just immediately absorbed him into our crew. Like right away, the next time we saw him, I think we just brought him home with us after the next show to party. And Marky, my best friend, Peruvian Mark, um, is, has been, and will remain. He is the graphic designer from tank crimes. The only employee of tank crimes. Oh, and I already talked to him like three times this morning because (laughs) we're working on like a million fucking things. That is my guy. And we work together. We've worked together this whole time because the first release was a deadfall release. So we put it together and kind of the whole aesthetic of tank crimes that I've developed in all this time has been me and him working together. It's like, I have a vision and he knows how to execute it. It's extremely talented graphic designer, motion graphics, editing, uh, an illustrator in his own right. And, um, everything, all my aesthetic is, is a partnership between me and him because I don't have those skills and we kind of do stuff like I can have the vision and I'll like sketch it on the napkin style. I'm like that kind of boss. (laughs) I will make some stick figures for you on the back of a napkin and send you home with it. And we go from there, you know, and, um, but yeah, really important friendship. And then Andre, the Belarusian, uh, same thing. We've, he had a Mohawk and we just saw him in the liquor store. And like, this is some kid shit. Like I'm, I'm, I'm almost 46. I don't see myself seeing someone in the liquor. Like if I saw somebody with a metal shirt in the liquor store, I might say, what's up? Yeah. yeah. Just like a head nod or what's up, dude. Or, you know, say the name of their t-shirt with a nod. Just like, you know, we should, we should always acknowledge each other when we see each other on the streets for the culture. But this is, this is, you know, 20 year olds going, Oh shit, you have a Mohawk where, what are you doing right now? We're, we're getting (laughs) some beers and going to the park. Yeah. And he was like, okay. And then that was it. <laughs> D- different times, man. I th- I think, uh, you know, the scenes just widened up so much. I, but I know exactly what you mean, man. Um, You were also in a few other bands. Uh, you know, I do want to get into Tank Crimes and, and a lot of my other questions. You were in a band. Um, I'm, I'm going to pronounce this wrong. Was it Vote Sec? It's Vote Sec. Okay. And, <laughs> excuse me, uh, joining Vote Sec really uh changed my life and really put me um the path i was already on um doing the label and all the stuff i wasn't there yet and joining votesec like was like getting a, a, a key like a secret key that gave me access to new things and new mentors and kind of like some of the scene elders who helped guide me and stuff 
And that was just absolutely crucial. And, um, you know, the people in VoteSec are older than me. Now, now they don't seem that much older than me. But when I was like 24 and they were in their 30s, I, that was they were like like I'm joining the band with these old ladies. Let's see if, how it goes. But uh, it seems like a cool opportunity. And yeah. they really pushed my drumming too because they were doing much more grindcore stuff. You know, like with Deadfall, we're playing like Minor Threat, Negative Approach style hardcore. And I get into Vote Sec, and they're like, "Here, here's an extreme noise terror cover we do." And I'm like, "Oh fuck, I'm out of my league, dude." And I just um. You know, there's been other situations in my life like this. I'm like, I'm kind of out of my league, but I really want to do it. So fucking I'm just going to like, I just got to do it. Like, I'll make it work, you know. And um, so Athena, the bass player of Vote Sec, uh, her and her husband at the time owned Six Weeks Records, which did albums by both Deadfall and Vote Sec. Um, but, uh, Jeff, the other owner, uh, is in one of my favorite bands of all time, capitalist casualties. Mm -hmm. And he really helped me out early on. I remember he had given me a list of, um, zines, physical zines were still pretty popular at the time. I was sending out like 20, 25 promos to fucking Xerox zines, you know, from maximum rock and roll to, you know, Steve zine from his scene, you know? And uh, and the other big tip that he gave me was um, other labels that I could trade records with because that was my form of distribution for the first few releases, you know, was just trading with people. And then so now I'm touring, I'm trading records, I'm doing this kind of stuff. And now I've gone to like a whole nother level of involvement in the underground uh, DIY punk scene in America. And now, and now I've got friends in Europe. I'm, I hadn't been to Europe yet, but now I've got friends from labels I'm trading with and stuff over there. So it was like, as I narrowed my interests into something smaller, my world got way bigger because, um, because it was a huge thing, but I had to like, I feel like not everybody like steps behind the curtain, you know? And I was like, wow, like I'm fully, not a spectator here i'm a full-on participant and the other super super integral part of my entire fucking life that happens from joining votesec and one of the reasons i felt okay joining votesec because we really didn't know each other very well at all and i was asked to join the band if i didn't say this already with just two weeks before the tour and it was a 30-day u.s tour and i'd never i'd never been on tour I'd played some shows in LA and Long Beach and Sacramento, uh, but certainly never outside of California and certainly not on a tour. And this was like a full proper one month U.S. tour. Uh, Six Weeks Records was working with Municipal Waste. They did their they did a split with Crucial Unit in their first album originally. And uh, so when I joined Votesec, the tour is with this new band, Municipal Waste. And I've got the and and Athena actually they they actually give me the record the split with Crucial Unit like check out this band this is who we're gonna tour with and I'm just this they're playing this super fast wild like kooky DRI you know the early stuff was just like rapid fire and uh, 
you know, it's all they're leaning into partying and it's they're not taking themselves too seriously, but I can tell they're serious musicians and stuff. And uh, when I joined Votech, I thought, you know, maybe if it doesn't work out with the band, it's still an opportunity and experience I want to do. And if I if we just like straight up don't get along, which I seriously didn't know if that was going to happen or not. um, These municipal waste dudes like seem cool enough, like, you know, like 22 out of the 30 shows are with them. So if me and the band don't get along, I'm sure I can like shotgun beers with those dudes or whatever. And the best, uh, those, so those were my expectations and the best of everything happened. Uh, Amy and Athena from Votesec, uh became and continue to be uh, some of my closest friends in the world. And I really felt like that they both kind of mentored me too, just kind of showing me the ropes. Uh, they both had a previous you know, underground band experience before Votesec and, um, and all the label stuff too, you know, Amy had a, had a small label too, as well. And, um, even like now, like we, we like broke up like 10 years ago or more and the Votesec group chat still like pops off on my phone, like all Mm -hmm. the time we're all, and we're all in different places. And, uh, and we had a member that, that died tragically in a motorcycle accident too, and uh, we are still all really close and talk all the time. So, um, and that's just really special and important to me. And we got to travel the world together, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, Votech went to Japan twice, went to Europe, uh, toward the U.S. several times. Uh, it was really an adventure and really a crash course that that really brought me to where I am now. And then, of course, meeting Municipal Waste on that very first tour, um, I mean, those guys are my best friends. I also just talked to Tony and Ryan today. Um, we know we're working on the, we're working on a tour coming up in, in two months. And uh, I ended up joining Municipal Waste as a roadie, first doing merch and then later doing guitar teching, stage managing, uh, stuff like that. But then I ended up traveling the world with municipal waste for like years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's huge too, because that was the catalyst for me learning about, um, you know, I still think we're in the underground, but certainly uh, joining me, joining up with municipal waste. Now our first big tour was with Guar. It was nine and a half weeks long. Now all of a sudden we're like, we got barricades and laminates and sound check times and load in times and merch cuts and like just all of a sudden we're in the fucking big league you know and i think i know that all my experience on the road both playing in bands and what i was getting at is that votesec and deadfall always played like votesec went to europe and played squats then i go back to europe with municipal waste and we play Hellfest and download fest you know i mean it's just different worlds but that taught me um you know for it's not the best term but the industry you know the the greater industry and i kind of um i was never a metalhead really i was never a metalhead until i until municipal waste was discovered by the metal community and kind of went from being they didn't change their sound i mean it, it was refined a little bit but they were a metal band. They're punk kids playing in a metal band in the punk scene. They signed to Earache Records. We start going out on big tours, playing festivals. Now they've been embraced by the metal community. I got into all metal 
by seeing the bands we were playing with on festivals, by, by asking for recommendations in the van. Um, you know, I think one of the funniest anecdotes is that when I, when Phil put together Cannabis Corpse and we were doing the, the, uh, when I, we were working on the records together because we're friends and I didn't have a very big death metal history at all at the time. This is 2007, 2006. And, uh, I'm putting out cannabis corpse records and I don't know what the gag is. <laughs> like I smoke weed, but I don't know. Uh, uh, you know, I don't know what I come bud is a reference to, right? Like, I don't know what blunted at birth is, you know? And then it, it got, and those are like the easy ones, you know? And then it got, um, it got way deeper when they started doing more death metal bands, but Phil really like um, taught me, like he was like, Oh, you know, get the bleeding. Like that was the first record. I, the first death metal record I sat down with to, to wrap my head and get into the genre and stuff. And it was really just, I mean, the same way a lot of music happens, but Phil, I was like, dude, sick. What is this shit? I mean, I knew what it was, but he gave me, he started giving, feeding me those records and getting me into death metal and, and, um, so to me, it's funny. It's cool. It's how music works, but not every metalhead wants to admit that he had to ask, uh, cannabis corpse, what the gag was, right? <laughs> it's supposed, if you're a true head, you're supposed to just get those references. And I was early on that. And that even happened, uh, with the first grindcore band I worked with population reduction. I remember walking in when we first started working together and uh ben from population reduction ended up in votesec with me and now he's also in ghoul so this is another early relationship that's now part of my adult life but uh i remember walking in i don't know if i was walking into their practice space or maybe just someone's apartment to smoke weed or maybe a party but not just a few friends and they had uh they're listening to grindcore and I walk in and I go, what's this broke ass population reduction shit that you're listening to? Population reduction was his band. He goes, this is our biggest influence terrorizer. You should check out this album. So again, I'm like opened up and then I get into this whole, you know, that was, that was right around the time municipal way signs to Eric. And so I'm like, Oh, I got some catching up to do boom, I'm like sucking down all these, all the, all the early death metal and grindcore stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but I'm already working with bands because we're, because of the, because of friendships um, that are, that are, the, those are their main influences. And that was, you know, some of my, some of my friends, you know, were, were, were bleeding death metal and grindcore as teenagers when I was fucking doing the noodle dance at the fish show, you know? <laughs> <laughs> all all paths um to death metal and something you said before you know about touring you said all of a sudden there's laminates there's barriers there's this give me the version of that for the label like you start up tank crimes um uh th then all it's like all of a sudden there's i imagine you're dealing with maybe legal issues uh registering copyrights or distribution the things that kind of separate like your your bedroom tape labels from what someone like you was doing i mean I, I imagine there's like levels to that and hurdles to that yeah the hardest part the hardest part in becoming a real label from a bedroom label is getting proper distribution 
And that was the hardest fucking thing. And, uh, you know, I don't feel like there's because I, because I'm always realistic with my ambitions and I like to stay, you know, with one foot solid in the underground, the deep underground, even, um, I never have felt like I had like the door slammed in my face that much in this career as I did trying to get distribution early. And the wackest thing happened to me was when a lot of the the independent distribution systems in the United States were breaking down in like, in like 2010, maybe something like that, 2010, 11. Um, I'm finally getting distribution offers from the big indies. You know, all of a sudden, my, all my unanswered emails and rejections are now, now I'm being courted. And that brushed my ego a little bit, but it wasn't because they were interested in my label. The whole industry was crumbling. Mm. There's huge stories. Uh, you know, the one I originally wanted to be with uh, was Mordam Distribution was the big one in San Francisco. And a lot of the labels I looked up to uh, when I started from all from alternative tentacles to prank to six weeks, a lot of the underground punk labels were distributed through there. Um, very quickly, they sold to Lumberjack Music, which was another which was like the bigger indie. So that gets absorbed. So that opportunity is gone. Now Lumberjack's calling me. They're trying to like stack up the debt. Like they're falling apart. The business is failing. They're about to go bankrupt. They're about to fuck over labels. All this shit's about to happen. And in the course of two years, I moved from three different distributors and each one rips me off for like eight to 10 G's. And now in the label, like without getting into money, that's less than the than the monthly operations over here these days. But in when that happened, I was just chewed up and spit out in, you know, uh, and it happened two years in a row. Boom, boom. Just so hard. Definitely enough to make some people pack it in. And in fact, a lot of labels that I, um, aspired to be like and and looked up to kind of slowed down hiatus or even shut the doors permanently in that time and i could not be discouraged uh a it's not my style but b i had not made it to a point where i could say i did this this and this i'm proud of it I can shut the door now and leave this behind. I, w I didn't feel that way. I felt like I'd still had much more to do. And, um, and then I just kept at it. And um, it was actually one of the great things about record labels is all the independent record label guys, we all just get along really well because all our friends are in bands, but none of our friends own labels. So when we and so no one wants no one wants to hear our shit. And then when we get on the phone or we get in the coffee or we get at the bar, oh, it's just beautiful to be with another label guy and just fucking talk, dude. Just fucking talk. There's there's some and, label guys who don't want to come on the podcasts because they don't. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna name names. I but I appreciate you, man. So um, 
fuck, I might have got lost there for a second. Distribution, I kept going. It was shutting down. Oh, record label guys. Yeah. So um, I meet, so always trying to meet more record label guys and stuff like that. But around this time, as some of the more underground punk labels are like shutting down, there's other other labels uh, picking up. And I meet Jake from Pure Noise Records. And they were, he was just starting off. And I was so impressed by how he hit the ground running and had gotten so far so fast. And his story is way different than mine because he like went to business school, interned at labels, interned at magazines. Like he had like, you can't really go to school for this, but as much as you can, he did, you know, and he had a lot of experience. So he really hit the ground running. And now he's one of the most successful indie labels with uh, with a crazy diverse lineup from metal to pop punk to some stuff I don't even I don't even know what the fuck it is. And uh, but that friendship just through a couple beers at the bar got me uh, got me in the room. You know, it didn't get me the deal, but it got me in the room with The Orchard, which is our distributor now. It's the biggest distributor in the U.S. It's it pretty, you know, all the all the all the metal labels are through the orchard. Re- Relapse is actually owned by the orchard. You know, Century's there, um, Prosthetic, like just every, you, most records at any chain record store got there through the orchard. You know, and I get in with the orchard, and I'm still a I'm still a small label, but the guy that brought me in, um, he just believed in the label. Um, and he let me in and I wasn't like, we weren't selling a lot of records then, but it changed everything because for the first time in my career, I was getting paid every month. So even if it was a slow month, I could, I had one other form of income consistently coming in. That wasn't me hustling mail order or, you know, for many years, I took my whole record distro to show you could find I was like the distro guy on the table at the back of shows for 10 years in the Bay. And now for the first time, there's just consistent money, I have a trustworthy source, they will actually sell my records for me, and fucking pay me for them. And I don't have to chase them down. I don't have to bill them. It's not like, oh, there's a threshold of money when we get there, we'll pay you. Um, it, my checks come like clockwork and I've been there for 10 years, you know, and that allowed me. So that was the corporate step really. And it's, I don't want to say it saved the label. Cause I don't think I, I don't think I would have stopped doing the label, but once that happens, I have just like a solid foundation to work on. Someone can get my records in stores and yeah, most importantly, I can count on that check. So if if I could stop you there and ask you, um, just for, you know, for for myself and the listeners, how does a distributor go being bought up or going out of bit or whatever the case cause a label to lose that kind of money? What 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 exactly happens there? So what happens is at, this is why I got gobbled up, and I'm glad you asked because it's a good point I wanted to make uh, to to give you that understanding. Thank you. Um, what they'll do is when a distributor uh, or even, you know, sometimes this happens with labels too. When you're fucking up for whatever reason, 
Okay. Like lumberjack went down. I think that had a lot to do with the economy and fucking soul seek and the collapse of CDs and all that stuff. I was at a second distributor where the owner was a drug addict. It was a completely different situation that shut down. That motherfucker was taking the fucking company ATM card. And when we got the receipts, it was like 9 a.m., 100 bucks, 11 a.m., 200 bucks, 3 p.m., 100 bucks. He was just fucking going there. And so those are the two changes. But back mm-hmm. to how it happens. To give the appearance that everything's okay, it's like fucking Bernie Madoff. You got to pay the people at the top. The big money makers have to keep getting their fucking checks or the alarms are going to fucking go. So my first deal, I was being signed strictly so they could never pay me and use any money that they were making off me to pay the top labels so they wouldn't bail. So that's how it works. And that's how they get you. And labels can do that with bands too. Take you over, rip your shit off because the top bands on the label need to get paid, even though the label is financially insecure. And so it's, it's a whole, it, it, and then the bricks just fall, right? Like how long can you do that? And now I actually, um, now from that experience and those lessons that I've learned, I can kind of like, I mean, I'm kind of like read into, I, I feel really comfortable with the companies I'm working with, but, uh, you know, I, I kind of watch other businesses and see how they're doing that and, and have predicted another big fall of a merch company one time because I saw them do something very similar. Um, but yeah, that's what it is. And I was totally wrapped up like that. I was absolutely used to send them my catalog with their, I mean, flat out and, you know, not everyone at the company, but the, the guy who was fucking up intention to sell my stuff, to pay the bigger labels, to keep them on board. So he could keep making their money too, and, or spending it wherever, or, you know, Wow, that's so it's brutal. It's yeah. brutal, man. The fucking record yeah. industry, dude. It goes, it fucking changes a lot when you go from fucking selling seven inches at the fucking back of on a washing machine in a basement at a fucking punk show, you know, with my fucking uh basically like a back patch with a bunch of one inch buttons for a dollar a piece fucking pinned to it to to keep me eating on tour to uh you know getting caught up in like a a giant thing, you know. I remember the one, the one thing I, um, the one thing that, that helped in that is all of a sudden I got, I made some friends in some bigger labels because, uh, I had some sort of camaraderie with them because we had experienced the same thing. And even though I was new and maybe I only, you know, there was labels that lost 30, 50 grand more than that, you know, and I lost my eight grand or whatever. And like, you know, but it's all you can scale it, you know, mm-hmm. eight grand to one labels, 50 grand to another, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that's how it goes down. And I was a victim of it. And, uh, I orchard is fucking the most corporate part of my business. And it's also the most fucking sturdy part of my business too. So well, while we're on, the, I feel like this might be relevant. I have, I have a bunch of things I wrote down, but in my notes here, sure, something you talked about, um, also in another interview was sustainability for labels in terms of not releasing new artists, sticking with the same roster of artists over and over again. Well, there's something happened there that's even harder for new bands. 
that's happening right now that I've only discussed in small circles because I'm only just realizing it and what kind of effect it's going to have on new bands moving forward. Now that the record pressing plants are moving fast again, you can get a, I got a test press coming in like three weeks from the day I send it off, you know, uh, shit's just back. It's fast. You can get a full record pressed in two months again, three months tops. It's all good. So all the big labels and especially some of the indie labels that aren't indie anymore, the bigger metal labels who've gotten bought out in the last couple of years, they are repressing their entire selling back catalog on vinyl, which is great. Good for them. Good for the bands. Uh, keeping back catalog, selling back catalog in print is really difficult to do because you don't get that big pre-order boom. You just kind of like have to spend the money again to like, keep it selling you know and um if it wasn't crowded enough with new records you know trying to get your fucking space mm. on the shelf at the record store um now that the big labels are repressing all the selling titles a lot of them that were just had become collectors records that you were finding on discogs or at you know like off the wall at record stores all those records are coming back out pressed in the thousands and they're going to be everywhere they deserve to be everywhere but check it out man if i'm a fucking record store owner that's a hard job that's harder than running a label i think i don't somebody might argue with me but i i think retail's fucking tough and uh, the margins are fucking razor thin on all music from the label to the store everything um you've only got so much money to spend every month you know to fill your fucking shelves and so do i want to do I want to take my chance on this new like grindcore release on tank crimes or do I want to get this fucking guaranteed selling classic fucking thrash black or death or punk album, you know, um, it's an easy choice. It's, uh, you know, my reissues are such an important part of the label because of that because i have a couple records in my catalog that are part of the story they're they're part of the fabric of punk and american punk and california and west coast punk history and so if you call yourself a punk store or a store that covers punk or metal as long as i keep it in print and available you should have this record People, this is the kind of record people are going to come in looking for, you know? So you're going to have a more popular store if you have more popular records. And the budgets are so low and the margins are so thin. I think more than ever moving forward from right now, we're going to see less and less stores take chances on smaller releases. Mm. Now, this doesn't change a lot for bands that sell you know a lot of labels and bands myself included sell direct i sell half or more of our pressings direct to our fans you know that's that's kind of pretty much half i sell direct and half go out to other stores and distros um but it, it also just goes back to the same like well what are you going to do to get your name out there because if you're on tour 50 shows a year and you know you're you're um available to your fans and showing your fans you're alive on on our phones every day by working your social media um 
it's going to get, you know, it's going to help your career and, but it's also going to give stores more incentive to take that chance and, and stock your record, you know, because you've come through town or you're going through town or they know you just, you know, it's just bands are, this sounds like I probably all art from the beginning of time until the end of time. Uh, you got to fight harder and harder for less and less, which is yeah. Fuck art. Fuck everything. That's fucking capitalism, you know, <laughs> but it, it, it parallels right along with uh, our industry. And I'm not daunted by that. And I'm not trying to like give this horror story. Um, but that's a big prediction of mine based on, you know, 25 years experience. So. Um, yeah, I really appreciate that insight. And I'm sure the listeners do too. Um, something you, you, you know, talking about these reissues of classic bands, a band that you've been working, um, uh, in, in that capacity with a lot over the last year or two is dystopia. Um, that's, that's the, that's the record I was talking about when I was like, that's what, if you have a punk store, you yeah. got to have that dystopia record there. And for me, when those records run out, the priority of repressing them goes above whatever my next new release mm. is. Now we're not as strong with money these days as we were in the past where I got to choose one or the other. But when those records get low, everything's got to stop for us to get those back in because also dystopia is more popular now than they were when they were a band. Yeah. Um, punk is fleeting. I don't, you know, I don't want to use a cliche, but we got to strike while the iron's hot. And if these records weren't available and they didn't have an active label promoting them, there's no way to tell if this, we'd be in the same place. I don't want to take all the credit, but it certainly helps um, that, they have a label and that the records are at stores, you know, um, something that happens, you know, contemporarily. So like something that blows up on TikTok still has to be like backed up in the real world to, to really, to really be part of the, of the culture, you know, and be part of, of everything. Are there issues with, um, I mean, we, you know, we all know how things go, but are there issues with, uh, unofficial and bootlegs of these uh, bands coming out and then, you know, bef before you step in, like, I know some bands might not even want a reissue coming out. They might want to keep it old school and secret, but then when the bootlegs start coming out, they want to work with someone like yourself to at least make it official. Is that something that comes that up? Ha that has been my experience. And uh, I I have a couple bands uh, that aren't, in that I'm interested in doing a reissue and they're not. Hmm. But we've had these open discussions like, well, maybe I will be one day, Scotty, but I'm not there right now and I don't. And, you know, a lot of guys from the from the 90s is who I'm more talking to than than bands from the 80s. Um, you know, some guys I've talked to just wish the fucking Internet never put their music up. You know, <laughs> I mean, some people do something. And this is, again, that goes with all art. Some people do shit when they're fucking 16, 20 years old and when they're 45. They're like, yeah, that was some shit when I was a kid. I, that's not, I'm not, that's not my life right now. I'm not trying to live that. I'm not trying to run a social media account for my, what I did when I was a teenager, you know, and that's fucking valid, you know, but then it go, you're right. Then they start getting bootlegged and they start, you know, I mean, I probably send one email a week that says, hello, please stop bootlegging dystopia t-shirts. Thank you. Scotty Tank Crimes Dystopia. And half the time they write back and go, Oh, I'm so sorry I took it down. The other half the time they just 
absolutely ignore me. And it's a cycle that'll never end. And companies like Etsy and stuff protect bootleggers. Like I was actually kicked off of Etsy for messaging bootleggers about their bootlegs. Like I was reported as the threat and kicked off the platform. So there's like nothing to do. And now with print on demand, it's so fucking stupid because any asshole can take a fucking JPEG right off my website and fucking print it on fucking koozies, fucking laptop cases, fucking lawn chairs, fucking pillowcases, fucking t-shirts, hoodies, long sleeves, you know, everything. It's wild. And uh, so really what's changed about the bootleg culture is it's not some kid, you know, I, I used to bootleg t-shirts when I first started. Uh, I had just screen printing one, one color uh, t-shirts uh, of old, old hardcore bands in my garage. And, but I would take a bucket and I would spill them out on the floor at a show or, or just put the bucket on the show. And there was a note on the side. It was like $5 dig. And you had to like, kids would sit under my table and rip through all the t-shirts and find yeah. the one and hope it was their size. Cause I was just buying bulk t-shirts at the thrift store, flipping them inside out and stuff. And then I was doing this when everything started to change really fast. And I was, I was selling stuff on eBay before PayPal was invented. So my PO box would be full of money orders every week, just chocked full of them. And I was just selling like one inch buttons and like one color t-shirts. So I'd be getting postal money orders for like $6 and 25 cents and my whole PO box would be full of them. So that dates it. But when e-commerce happened and people get online with, with bootlegs. And like I said, now it's with the print on demand. Um, I mean, there's, there's endless Instagram pages that just are called with no shame, like bootlegs are us yeah, and shit like that. Yeah. And I know that's part of our culture and some people are doing really cool stuff. And, and to your point, uh, a lot of bands aren't paying attention to what the fans want. You like active metal bands that get bootlegged. It's like, why don't you make a t-shirt? Why don't you make a four color long sleeve of your first album, bro? Mm. They don't get it, you know? And so yeah. um, the reason that I approach everyone with my initial email, please stop is because a, I'm not the fucking bootleg police. I don't fucking hate that shit. I don't want to be that, but these bands have entrusted me with the responsibility of their catalog. And if somebody's making money off their likeness, it should be them. That's part of, it's a huge part of my job. Yeah. Um, so it's rough, but it moves, it, it does move people forward. Um, it does get people into wanting to make merch to maybe coming back to get the record out because of the bootleg. And then now I, I think this, because I've, because I've now spotted what has interested you about this conversation, which is kind of like the, the deeper stuff. So I really appreciate your questions. There is a new form of bootlegging, plaguing bands, and it is the laziest and shittiest way thing you can fucking do. And it also speaks to the, to the current music industry and how there's no fucking guardrails for this shit. It's happened to me twice already. And I've, I've reached out to other bands it's happened to. Motherfuckers are bootlegging bands direct to Spotify. 
People are going through their fucking collections and finding old shit that's not streaming. And you just fucking go to TuneCore or DistroKid or whatever and fucking set up an account. You fucking upload an album and just start collecting checks, dude. You don't have to do shit. And you don't want to promote it because you don't want anyone to know. You just want the fans to casually find it and start playing it. And you get that fucking piece of a penny every time I touch play on my phone, you know? But with bigger bands, um, I I know word on the streets is that nobody makes any money off streaming. A lot of people make a lot of money off streaming. The music industry's never made more money. It's just comes back to like we were saying before, smaller artists are getting pinched harder and making less. But any band that has a consistent amount of monthly streamers and you know it's hard to say a lot of people in my industry it's like if you have 10k monthly streamers people take you seriously if you have 50k monthly streamers you're like a real fucking band you're obviously working you're doing something once you hit 100k if you got a decent record deal that's those are checks they're, they're not it's not a ton of money but it's hundreds of dollars a month, you know, which I was not a label in the late 90s. So I don't know how to compare that to see big CD income, you know, when a label my size was pressing off 10K CDs. But um, I know the most popular bands on my label get checks and it helps, you know. Um, so, but that's the gnarliest new bootleg, dude, just mm. bootleg it to streaming. You don't have to do shit. It's despicable. Uh, it's like, it's not it's even absolutely just, it's crazy. Right. It's like, Espe- and there's no way around it. Like a lot of t-shirt bootleggers, there's, there's, there's fans who bootleg shirts. I fucking get it. They're true fans and they're total fucking opportunists who don't give a shit and are in it for money. I think that's putting something on Spotify that's probably already on YouTube is just fucking criminal shit. You know, it's like intellectual property theft. It's not even bootlegging at that point. Um, That's that's, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's not even a bootleg, right? I call it digital bootlegging, but that's not what it is. It's just straight jacking your shit. Well, you know what you're talking about with like making a few t-shirts and bringing them to the show spreading them out or something like that that's the thing is like we come from this diy scene the basement shows that sort of thing and so it's like that that love of or you know the people who make you know a few you know a couple of um uh t-shirts from a defunct band a couple of cassette discographies from some band from back in the day or something like that maybe you know it's like you, yeah but uh, you're like buying it at a show there's for like a like there's like a limit dollars yeah. in cash and making it this you know it, it becomes part of your musical upbringing not a yeah. bootleg now a t-shirt bootlegger will run pre-orders yeah so you're that's... not even you don't even have any fucking skin in the game bro you're just fucking Photoshop some shit. You're going to fucking take pre-orders. You can promote the shit. I've seen fucking sponsored ads for dystopia shirts, bro. It is fucking crazy. Taking pre-orders. So you don't even have fucking skin in the game. And shirts from Tank Crimes where bands get paid royalties cost $20. We might have to go up to 25 this year. But a bootleg where no one gets shit and no one had to do anything costs 35 all day. 
Yeah, because it has that like rarity limited thing to it. I do. There's, well, because they're, they're yeah. coming right. That's part of the culture too. Yeah, you know, it's coming yeah. from that. You know, the t-shirt collector culture, the stuff. There was a fucking dystopia Europe tour shirt that sold for like fucking four thousand dollars, dude. I I'm starting to. Do so you know what we're doing? We're reprinting that motherfucker, dude. Yeah. We're working on it right now. <laughs> you you, me- you mentioned that you mentioned that the the guys that just want to stay in the '90s and wish the the internet was never invented, dude. I'm kind of I'm starting to veer. I literally <laughs> just had this conversation with a band that I connected with that I would I would love to reissue their stuff. They're a very important uh, one of the original power violence bands, and I got in touch with them because someone's bootlegging them to Spotify right now. And one of the guys is really into it, and the other guy is still firmly against it. But that was exactly what he said. He was like, I fucking hate the internet. And it's like his entire view of this entire thing that changed the world, the internet, is he hates it because people can listen to his band from high school's music on there. (laughs) You know? It's like, yeah, dude, that's, that's, that's food for thought. That's scary, man. Something for, for uh, artists to check their, check themselves out on Spotify and make sure everything. I try to tell people like, Hey, if like you're, you know, cause I have a lot of fans now. I have a lot of new, new younger fans post COVID. uh, We got a lot of new teenagers into what I do, which has been really cool because we were really an aging bunch. Um, just just underground punks and metalheads in general i think any band and label can agree or anybody who goes to shows have seen the the youth are back you know mm-hmm. and uh like a boom i hadn't seen since like george w bush era you know um and uh ah fuck i lost my train of thought can you help me can you take me back one step yeah, we, uh, we were talking about the um, uh, uh, you you said you said a lot of younger people coming to shows. We were talking about the 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 kind of DIY aspect, the bootlegging, the digital stuff. We wish the internet had never been invented. The uh, <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying. I remember all that. I just I just forget where I was just going. Yeah. Where where it took me back to the new kids. But I'll I'll just keep going from there. One thing that's really cool is how many new kids are out. Oh, I meet kids whose parents got them into my shit. That's what I was getting at. Okay. That's what I was getting at. So that's, that's a whole different, that's like, that's a new thing for me and something really cool. You know, my, my dad took me to their show and now I'm getting into it, you know, and that, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I see that and that's cool. And that, um, I don't remember why that pertained to bootlegs, um, but that's where I was going with that, you know. Um, well, ju- just that idea that there's something a little bit more special and and sentimental about you know bootlegging a handful of shirts as opposed to having like a a big cartel website. Yeah, and you know, yeah. it, it just kind of like there's something about it that loses the uh, I don't know loses the punk rock appeal in some way. There's like a spectrum there. I don't know. Yeah. Well, here's something, here's something really cool that, that lends itself to that is that, uh, you know, and we started this by you asking if it, you know, if it pushes bands to want to put their stuff out. So the dystopia catalog ended up with tank crimes because they always put out all their own shit. Actually a huge honor of mine is that the three big, the, the, three of the bands that I've reissued, uh, despise you spaz and, and dystopia, all three of those bands had their own label in house, sometimes two labels in house that put out all their own stuff. And I'm personally influenced by all those labels. And to me, it's got that 
as a label guy, it's got that little more bit of I'm honored that much more that these guys not only trust me with their music, but like they were the labels. They did it themselves and had full control and then passed that responsibility on to me. So when Mouse, the guitar player from Dystopia, who ran Life is Abuse Records, Todd, the bass player, also ran Misanthropic Records. They had teamed up on some of the records, but um, I worked for Mouse. One of my last real jobs was screen printing for Mouse. He owns a, a fine art gig posters, screen printing, not T-shirts, uh, posters and stuff, really high end stuff. It's called Monolith Press. And I helped him start i was just volunteering for beer when he bought his first automatic press and we were doing stuff and as that business grew and the record label he was selling less and less physical product that was slow and tank crimes was growing that was how the dystopia catalog slowly migrated to tank crimes but at the time dystopia was really into file share they loved it they thought fucking file sharing was the shit. Everybody who was there at the time, we know what it did to the industry, but we all have that great nostalgia of how fun it was for, you know, it changed because when it first came out, we were looking for stuff we already knew about, you know, it became different when everything was free everywhere. I don't want to get too deep into that, but dystopia was like, Oh, you know, it's cool. We sold all our records. We toured the world. We sold thousands of records. Uh, people don't really buy records anymore. All music's free online. So you know what? We don't need a label anymore. We don't need to be a label because our music will just always be for free. And, you know, people can make, you know, a small run of t-shirts and sell it in their local scene. And, you know, pat will always, you'll always be patches and stuff, bootlegs around and, you know, stuff like that. And they were just 100% okay with that. Just cool. We're done. Thank you all. We're packing it up Sound, and the internet will keep our music alive for people who care. Sounds, you know? sounds utopian. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, and it was when the blog spots, you know, this is post soul seek post line yeah. wire. We were just yeah. the blog spots that were keeping it going with media fire links and stuff like that. Basically, when I forget who it was or how it happened, but, you know, when Mediafire fucking gets shut down, yeah. you know, probably the movie studios, I think, is who was really who got in or with the big major labels. But when when those places finally were shut down in court and those owners were bankrupted, though, I'm sure they're still rich living on an island somewhere now. That changed the game. That was how the industry figured out how to monetize digital music, and, you know, whether it was when we were all paying a dollar a piece for it. Well, I never did, but some people were and iTunes actually worked. I had some bands that really just sold some 99 cent tracks on fucking iTunes before that went the way fully to streaming. Mm -hmm. But that was part of what got me to convince Dystopia to uh, to trust me with their catalog was that you could no longer just Google search dystopia full album download and have the songs in two clicks. Yeah. Um, the, uh, after, after this, after doing the research, I should say this afternoon, I wanted to go back and revisit a lot of those old releases um, that I'm sure were very influential to you back in the day that, that, that you're talking about now. Um, with, with that being said, uh, Scotty, you've been very generous with your time. 
Um, and we would love to welcome you back for a part two eventually. Um, I, I should say, though, before before we, we close this thing off, I always wanted to write down a few things that are, that are coming on the Brain Squeeze Tour 2024. Oh, yeah, I'm actually here to promote something. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I write this stuff down, man. No, because I appreciate all the insight. But I just want to remind for the listeners before um, I ask you the, the final few questions here, the Brain Squeeze Tour 2024 is going out with Municipal Waste, Ghoul, Necrot, and Dead Heat. Are you going to be doing um, roadie stuff on that and hanging out on the tour? I'll be, I'll be on the second half. Actually, um, the way it worked out, is um i'll give you a little behind the scenes here we don't we don't keep kayfabe up too much with ghoul uh one of the monster characters from ghoul's stage show is actually in guar we 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 say he got called up to the big leagues wow you know for a costume band wow and they have a so that's his main gig and they have a they have a tour starting may 3rd so as it happens uh, the tour comes right into Berkeley the next day after he has to leave. I will be taking his shoes. So people on the second half of the tour, I will be out hanging out at the bar, hanging out at merch, trying to kiss as many babies and shake as many hands as possible. <laughs> and I'll be squirting blood on motherfuckers from the stage during ghoul in some sort of robot or monkey costume. <laughs> That is awesome. Yeah, I encourage all the listeners to check that out. Um, even, even if that 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 realm of metal isn't your normal forte, definitely worth it for the stage show alone. Um, that's the Brain Squeeze Tour 2024. Look that up on social media. Obviously. Yeah, let me give that. Let me give the hype because we're yeah, giving yeah, you a little yeah. bit of everything, baby. Yeah, we're opening up with Dead Heat. You know, Dead Heat's really a metal band, but they exist in the contemporary hardcore scene. So. You know, they're a crossover band, which is a lot, which is really the the um, the strain that births a lot of the bands that I work with is where metal meets punk or where punk meets metal, you know. So we're oh, you starting up with Dead Heat, hardcore band with fucking riffs. Into Necrot, pure fucking death metal, extreme metal, excuse me, extreme metal, definitely different vibe than the rest of the bands. You know, Ghoul is playing that that just what they call it splatter thrash, you know, but it's really the death and grind based thrash metal with even like parts of surf. And they do the whole uh, stage show. They are cannibal mutants from Creepsylvania. Some some people might show up to battle with them on the stage as it goes, you know. Um, and then, of course, Municipal Waste, one of the greatest live bands around these days you know i mean they've been rocking stages for 20 years now it's actually this tours the 21st anniversary of their first tour and um and when that record came out um the very first pressing of waste them all the plant made a mistake and shrink wrapped the vinyl without putting the lyric insert into the record and I remember when they had their record release show at 924 Gilman in Berkeley. This must have been, well, I guess if it's 21 years, this was 2023. Uh, we sat in my bedroom in San Francisco and opened up all the records and put the fucking, put the inserts in. So, uh, you know, I've, I've been there with the way since day one and they've been with tank crime since day one. And so it's really special opportunity, this whole tour. They're, they're such a great band and uh, such important people to me. I love them so much, 
but that it finally worked out, man, I'll tell you, it is not easy to get bands on your label to tour together. Certainly not at the label, at the, at the, um, at, at the size that I operate with in my band size, I'm working with bands that can go out and make some pretty good money on tour, but maybe got a job when they get home, you know, um, not municipal waste, but the, but the rest of the guys. And so it's really hard to do kind of a label showcase because one band's month is just not going to be another band's month, you know, to be able to get out and, and put it all together. And so that this lined up and that I didn't even put together the tour. Tony from municipal waste put it together and kind of surprised me with it. He booked, he booked ghoul and Necrot and called me and said, what should we do? Put dead heat on it and call it the brain squeeze tour. And I just fucking flipped out and I was like, hell yeah. And he was like, well, will you help promote it? And I was like, that's what I'm good at, dude. I'm a fucking <laughs> marketing fucking machine, dude. Let's have, let's have a fucking tour. And so, uh, yeah, I'm actually right now. Uh, I'll, I'll probably get right back to it when we get off the call is I'm fucking, uh, got 1000 fucking posters for the tour and I'm here now. I've got street teamers working for me all around at all the different places, but I know from experience, you never want there to be when you're asking someone to volunteer and help for you. You know, I give people posters and stickers and, and my love and all that stuff, but I, I'm people are really volunteering for for their appreciation of the of the of the tour and the label. You don't want any barriers to get in their way, so these posters have a spot at the bottom, you know, for the promoter to fill in the date and venue. I'm actually going in now and writing that in for everybody I'm sending posters to because I know that somebody might get the posters and then they open them up and they set them on like the kitchen table or next to their bed. And they're planning on going out and taking them out to 10 different record stores and tattoo shops and bars for me. But ah, I got to I don't have a Sharpie. And then ah, I don't have a roll of tape or I don't have the staple gun. There's just so many little things that can get in the way. So I try to make it easy as possible. So I'm actually that's like what I'm doing right now. <laughs> I, I appreciate because that, it's really man, yeah. important for me to have flyers yeah. on the streets and you can't always trust local promoters. Anybody who's been on tour knows that. Mm. And especially at this label, at this level, um, you know, half the clubs are live nation clubs. So they don't always even have to make like these shows are going to do good. I, I anticipate most of the shows selling out, but at some like live nation type clubs, I mean, they get a bad name for a bunch of other reasons, but my main beef with them, uh, since they do usually take care of you when you're at the clubs, they're the nicer clubs with showers and laundry and good catering and all the stuff. But my beef is that they don't need to make money off every show, you know, because it's like this big, like publicly traded company or whatever. So you're not always necessarily going to get the promotion on the ground that mm. you want, you know, and you can't trust a fucking Instagram post to get people in that city out, you know? So, um, what what the local promoter won't do, I will fucking do from here, you know, because it's it's important to me. I think young bands and artists, unsigned artists and bands starting out should take uh a lesson from that that work ethic right there and that spirit of uh you know getting out getting out there and promoting yourself. Well, the, thanks, but then the other thing, just in general, and us old heads know that, and it's it's hard for you know, ever since Photoshop was invented, it's been downhill. 
But I mean, flyers are such a part of our culture, man. Yeah. I've got fucking four coffee table books full of them, you know, like it's so such a cool part of history of our culture is the old flyers. People fucking love them. My biggest hits on social media is posting an old flyer, you know, yeah. um, it's such a part of our culture that everyone seems to appreciate. But when it comes to doing it for themselves or their own scene or their own band, like people can't be fucking bothered, you know, um, it didn't even used to be that a tour would make one design for the whole tour. You know, now they call them ad mats is the tour poster, which is basically the fucking JPEG you send out to everybody with already the tour art and stuff, it used to be that every fucking local show had their own flyer because there was yeah. somebody on the ground who was excited about it, you know? It's usually like a variation of the headliner's cover art with like a space to Yeah, yeah, to exactly. Photoshop and, and, you know, yeah, like a lot of yeah. artists, this is another thing I say to kids, and I tell this to every fucking illustrator who fucking hits me up on Instagram, there is no barrier to making a flyer. You can fucking make a flyer for any fucking show. So if you're an illustrator and you're you you're like, oh, it's so hard to get out there. There's so much competition. I can't get anyone to pay attention to me. You start blaming the algorithm and shit like that. Check it out. Is there a big show coming to your town? You know, make the fucking flyer. If it's sick, the flyer to T-shirt art to album cover pipeline is fucking real. And that's, that's where a lot of extreme artists came from. That's true, man. And so... I think it's important. I think it's important for our culture and them actually being out on the streets is important for our culture because it's like a lot of like subcultures, uh, you know, not even just about musically, but well, I'm talking about specifically music. It's like, we're here. We're in this fucking city. There's a population of us. We're punks. We're metalheads, you know? So when fucking people go out shopping at the fucking market and out doing their things and going to restaurants and going to bars, I think it's important for them to know that there's a metal scene in your town, you know, and that's how they're going to know if there's a fucking flyer on the fucking laundromat with some fucking weird ass logos mm -hmm. and some skulls on it, you know, then, you know, we're out here. That's true. So that is yeah. really important to me. I, I think that's true because I like th that's just quickly just something I think about a lot. Like I live in um, an, uh, a heavily an area an area that's heavily populated uh, with a with an immigrant community from all all different places. Um, and because of that, sometimes I've noticed even when I was in high school, I've lived in the same town most of my life. I've noticed that sometimes metal scenes can be insular, or metalheads, punk rockers, whoever underground people can be a little insular based on. Uh, cultural things, you know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm just speaking for myself here in New York, even, mm -hmm. you know, um, and I've often, you know, like uh, you'll see sometimes there are certain shows there's, and I've talked about this, uh, you know, people know in New York city, there's almost like, uh, a Latino metal community within the wider underground metal community. You know what I mean? And, and they, yeah. they have like their own, uh, shows, not that anyone would be excluded for not being from that culture if they tried to go to a show, but it's it's like they have their own thing. Um, yeah, got it. And what I've often thought is like the actual, the idea of putting, like I could put up physical flyers in my own neighborhood 
for a show, for a death metal show of one of my bands or something, and probably generate more people that aren't familiar with the local New York scene. You know, people who have moved here in the last few years, things like that. Because people who have just moved here from the la- you know in the recent years, they might not necessarily be following the, the, everyone on Instagram or whatever to know yeah, where the local shows are at. The right so, you, like, like you said, the, the supermarket, the laundromat, that's actually like it, it's viable, you know, because there's always people. If you're in an area that has a lot of transit of people for whatever reason, you never know who's in the neighborhood and who's in the community. So that that's like true, I'm man. saying. I walked into a fucking record store one day that happened to have fucking DIY shows in the back and noticed people were drinking their own 40s from the <laughs> liquor store across the street and it changed my whole fucking life, you know? Yeah. So yeah. things happen when you're out walking around, you know, when you're out at night and when you're out doing stuff and having some drinks or with some friends, you're more open to get into some shit, you know? Man, this nothing made me hate the internet more than this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I told makes, you about all the horrible yeah, things. Yeah, well, just, no, it just makes me what I, we love. <laughs> just why I live that like the kind of like more, you know, like you know, in the nineties, you kind of had to be out out a little bit more to to experience things. I say as I miss lots of local shows, and listeners know I'm a hypocrite. My from my local friends know. So, um, well, yeah, like I said, I met my guitar player on the bus and my bass player in the liquor store. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, happened. man. You know, you had to be out. The, of, the other know. thing I'll add. The other thing. I'll add is that physical flyers actually do better on social media. If I post the fucking JPEG on my Instagram, it's not, I mean, I was making fun of people that blame the algorithm, but the algorithm's a real thing. It won't go as far because it won't be as interesting. Mm-hmm. If I fucking go and and I even will go and just put up one flyer at first, because I still go out and put up 100 flyers around Oakland when I do a show. But the first thing I'll do is as soon as we have the flyer and are ready to promote, I'll run one off, take it to the fucking telephone pole at the corner in front of the liquor store, post it, snap a photo of that, the fucking engagement of a photo of a flyer in the wild is huge. Because you get people that are just like, wow, flyers, people still do that? Wow, I remember those. And for every fucking person that comments some shit like that, 50 more people get fed your post. So yeah, it, yeah. it's not just on the streets. Yeah. We can't get away from our phones, okay? I can fucking stop drinking beer easier than I can fucking put down my phone, and I love drinking beer, you know? And... uh we're not going to get away from them, but you can take some of these old school things and incorporate it into the way things are done now. And it, you'll get a good response. You know, I, I do, I, I do from experience can say that absolutely factually about flyers working on Instagram is good. That might be your, your whole bat, you know? Yeah, that's that's a good point, man. And it, it just makes it that much more interesting for people and engages people that much more. Um, so with that being said, uh, like I said, I appreciate your time, Scotty. Um, yeah, I'll definitely, I like talking to you, man. I really appreciate this whole conversation and I, uh, I don't think we should drag it on too long for listeners. Um, because I might've tapped out by now if I was listening, I don't know how far we're going, but I would love to come back, man. We could pick up any any place, man. Yeah, absolutely. I think you know, um, in a few months, when you have uh, you know some other releases to promote, some other news for the label, um, absolutely. I think we could get onto a few different points. I kind of just listening to you on the other podcasts. I kind of knew that you know you, you could you could um uh, you could go in depth. So I you know that's why I wanted to write down these questions, man. But 
Um, two final questions for you to expand okay. on is just uh, like I warned you at the beginning of our conversation. Um, just recommend for myself and the listeners any type of music, any you know, demo album, EP, whatever, something from back in the day, and something a little bit more recent. No strict rules on that. Okay. Um, well, my favorite band, I got it for old bands. Uh, my favorite band is, and I they they popped up earlier, but uh, I can't recommend them enough. Is Capitalist Casualties? Wow, yeah. from Ronard Park, Santa Rosa, California. Um, I think one of the best that, you know, they're lumped into the power violence category because before power violence defined a genre, it was just a group of friends in Cal on the West coast. And they were certainly a part of that, but they were even around, they were kind of proto that too, you know? Um, and I just think that capitalist casualties are a vicious fucking hardcore punk band. It's fast. It's short. It's to the point. It has punk politics, anti-war, anti-establishment. They talk about uh, drug addiction and depression and real fucking things that affect everyone's fucking lives. And uh, I just think that they have like a perfect fucking catalog. And I've seen them like 30 times. I got to actually tour Japan with Capitalist Casualties, which was insane. Uh, though, um, which they really, you know, we really rode their coattails to go over there. We got to go back a second time on our own because we had such a successful tour, but it was because capitalists brought us with them. And, uh, but the, the strongest set I ever saw was I, their 25th anniversary song. They did 25 songs in 25 minutes, man, for the 25th anniversary. And they were just fucking furious. And, um, and then uh, the saddest part is that um, both uh, Sean, the singer, and uh, and Mike, the guitar player, are, are they're dead. They're not with us anymore. And uh, it's tragic because both those guys were my friends. And we're both just such both different guys, too. And we, we had different relationships and stuff. And uh, but um, with getting away from my personal experience and, and the people in the band, I just think their music is fucking awesome. And it really distills down a lot of what I like. Yeah. Great recommendation, man. Another band that takes me back. Um, you know, I, obviously I'm from New York and I think even more so I was fascinated with that West coast power violence scene in the nineties when I was in high school, I, I got the Fiesta comes alive CD. Yeah. And that just, it, it just, that was everybody on there, man. I, everybody was on that one. Just listening to that CD and garnering what little lore I could from zines and other releases, I was just enamored with that with that California power violence. Yeah, it's another uh, great example of a uh, band people should check out from from um from back in the day from over there, man. What about something a little bit more recent? Uh, the two new bands. Uh, I was trying to uh, I was trying to think, and I just the I think the two new bands records that I bought most recently uh, that I dig them both and they're both uh, different styles, but both reflect my taste really well. One is this band uh, from DC called brain tourniquet mm. and they're playing that classic fucking power violence style that crossed out, despise you like they, what people think you, you were saying like, you, you know, like I know, but not everyone knows that when power violence started like that Fiesta CDs, it's not, it's a very diverse sounding yeah. group of bands. Yeah. But what now I call, I, and I, what I, I call that power violence, two words, 
And what I call now one word power violence is kind of the bands that were influenced by that. And those bands tend to sound more like infest despise you crossed out the fast barks with the slow part yeah. and stuff like that. And I think that's kind of the sound that a lot of people can agree on is power violence. Brain Tourniquet to me from DC. They have a, put out an LP. I have their seven inch two from a couple years ago on Iron Lung Records, and it's fucking sick. Can't recommend it enough. And the other record I really like from last year, um, a band from, uh, they're from New Mexico. I don't know if they're from Albuquerque. I think they're from Santa Fe, actually. Uh, but they're called Street Tunes, which I think is a sick band name. But uh, Street Tunes, they did their LP on actually Chad from Necrot uh, has a record label called Carbonized. And I actually I actually helped him start that label was is a very proud moment for me as as so many so many uh, record label guys mentored me and and kind of pulled me up the ladder. Um, you know, that's important to me to, to do too. And watching carbonized records really get its legs and become its own thing is, is a real, like, um, my eyes sparkle at that, you know, but, uh, he did this street tombs record, man. And it, it's death metal for the more punky side of death metal, as opposed to the more technical side. And, uh, I just think it rips and I actually caught them live. Um, they were on that, um, left to die tour. The, the death you know how death the band is there's like two or three different incarnations yeah. of that band right yeah. now they're, they're not they're doing they're not really cover bands but it's just like different members from different lineups doing different albums so the left to die one um i went and saw them it was a killer show but street Tom street tombs opened up and i already had their lp and i thought they were sick so uh and they made the uh they made i was kind of i wasn't surprised because how good it was but uh they made the decibel top 40 list, mm. which does not always reflect my personal tastes unless it's a band on my label makes it on the list, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But street tunes was on there. So I hope, I hope they catch on, you know, it seems like because they were on that left to die tour, it seems like they're going to go for it. So looking forward to seeing them, you know, back out on the road, they've got this new record, you know? So, um, yeah. And that's a really good mix of my taste too. a more power, power violence band and a more death metal band, but both, you know, always to me, always from the punk side of things, you know, because I also think metalheads that come from punk share more values with me without mm -hmm. talking shit on anyone. They share more values with me, you know, I definitely I think I can see exactly what you're saying, Um, you know, and because, yeah, exactly. Without getting too deep into it, I, I think that that coming from that coming from a, a subgenre or a subculture that's more concerned with social political issues um as opposed to to one that has kind of a history of escapism as such as heavy metal yeah. does you know it's i i there's a parallel there's a, there's a, there's there's something there yeah you know what and that my friend was just my phone telling me i got 10 percent of power left <laughs> all right man look scotty it was great talking to you and we appreciate it i'm sure the listeners do too we're going to be looking out for all of your new releases the listeners can check you out on social media um and look for you on that uh brain squeeze tour 2024 where, wherever you're going to be i and really appreciate plug, it uh ghoul has a new ep coming out february 2nd called noxious concoctions mm -hmm. pre-orders are already flying we it's doing really well i'm very happy we've sold a shit ton of them it's in stores february 2nd and will be available on that whole tour as well and uh we're working on other stuff too a lot of it and a lot of shit's about to come down the pipe so 
Excellent, man. We'll be following you, man. Well, it was really great hanging out, man. I love. I'm glad we kept the video on because now I feel like we're just homies, dude. Hell so, yeah, dude. I, it's good. It's nice to be friends with you, dude. <laughs> Hell yeah, man. I'll hopefully we'll get out there to uh to the West Coast, or I'll, I'll catch you know I'll catch you when you come through to New York sometime, man. You know, um, and cool. we'll meet each well, other we'll in do, person. We'll man. do this again, but we'll we're in touch in social media now. So cool, man. I'll fucking see you around. Absolutely, brother. I'll be in touch. This will be out awesome. in a few weeks, and I'll send you the links and all that, man. All right. Okay, Keller. All, all right, right, peace. Have a good night, dude. All right, and we're back, uh, and we are. Um, it's more like a uh, uh, pet cemetery right now than misery. I want to say, Dave, we're transitioning from Stephen King metaphors um, because we're bringing dead, uh, uh, dead death metal records from the early two thousands back. We we buried them in my backyard with some leaves and did some little rituals around them. You know, not not officially sanctioned occult rituals or anything like that. It was more like. Kind of like like it was it was like uh, the guy in the Smurfs, the wizard. What was his name? You know what I'm talking about? Oh, Gargamel. Gargamel. Yeah, it was like that level of a cult. We don't really get we delve we dip our toes yeah. on the on the heavy. There's, there's always a cauldron, but the magic yeah. is shaky. Look, I'd love to interview Watain. Don't know if we share lifestyle choices, um, respectfully. That being said, Dave, I'm gonna let you take the first swing while we're on that occult uh, mindset right here because this band. You brought something very interesting to the upstate New York death metal uh, legacy table, and I'm going to let you take it away right now. All right, yeah the uh, the band that I got this week it's uh, they're they're called uh, Bloodgasm, and uh, they sure they are. are. They sure they they sure they sure did settle on that name, man, didn't they? Yeah, well, they, they actually they were called something else previously, but um, <laughs> what what were they called previously? Uh, what was it? Bone crushing violence. That, I want to say that like this, it's a thin margin, but I, that might be better than um than bloodcastum. All right, all right, let's go ahead, let's go ahead. Yeah, because I do well, like I, I did I did find this album to be redeeming of the name. So go ahead, man. You know they're, they're uh from they're by from by Middletown, which I was kind of surprised about. Uh, but um you know it's it's like a slammy death metal akin to. You know the Long Island style, uh, you know, like eternal bleeding, disfigured, repudiation. I actually, I, I felt like they had a really strong resemblance to uh, Malamore from uh, yes, yes, upstate. I'm not sure where they're from, but uh, yeah, you know, it, it's, it's sort of it was just surprising what they sent like, like their the the style that's chosen because it, it's not a. I feel like they're not part of any scene really that I could figure out, you know, there's like Albany that has like a big scene and Rochester has a big scene. And these guys are just kind of, you know, I couldn't even tell you if they played shows or not, but, um, you know, like they, they, they had like the really good, I think that if, uh, if they would have like, you know, been more, uh, what was it? What am I trying to say? They had like, like, you know, more attachment to a scene or some of that or gotten the name out more. I think they, they probably could have really, you know, gotten out there 
gotten but, uh, the, gotten the, gotten the name out. <laughs> so I'm still riffing on their band yeah. name. I'm sorry, dude. All right, but well, but you know what I mean. It's, it's like uh, it's you're a right. Real, you're uh, right. You're right. You're right. I'm just joking. They, they have like a, a a really good sound that like people would really would have been into. And I actually, you know, I, I never knew about these guys, and I found out about them a couple of years ago on like a like a Facebook death metal group. It's like like death a death metal collectors group. And uh, apparently their CDs are very sought after these days. Uh-huh. Uh, but um, yeah, like really stompy, heavy, groovy uh, death metal. You got the the high and the low vocals, which I'm always a fan of. Got a lot of guitar solos too, which is sort of uh, atypical for 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 that specific like subgenre. But uh, yeah, what do you think? Well, I'm going to say it was very interesting. It was very catchy. Uh, I do want to listen to it again. Some different ideas. It reminded me, I see what you're saying about the Long Island death metal bands, but it reminded me more of a little bit of like Mortal Decay. But Mortal Decay leaning into the like like the block rock and beats a little bit more because these guys really broke it down. Like they kind of like... Uh, uh, unashamedly, like used like the break beats and the the kind of like hip hop beats and and there's even it's definitely a death metal band with like groove oriented death metal part. They were really ex- like exploring the breakdowns and the rhythm a- aspect of death metal, but there's a new metal strain running through this, and it's not. I don't want people to get the wrong idea. It's definitely not in the vocals, and it's definitely not like there's 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 a weird tendency in the guitars to kind of use these like little like subtle atmospheric kind of pseudo melodic dissonant parts. Maybe it sounds yeah. like there's some sort of scronk pedal, some weird little pedal he's experimenting with, and then they kind of then they build that up into the, the the bigger breakdown, which is a death metal part. But there's a tendency I notice in the guitars mainly in the songwriting, and 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 I guess in the drums to really lay into that hip hop breakbeat when they're doing breakdowns. Um, but that that could also be you know you could also say that's reputation style or whatever. But there there's there's something about this band where you, like it's I think what was this like two thousand three 2002 you could tell i mean slipknot obviously is relevant now but like 2002 slipknot was still this kind of like cultural explosion um you know they they hit big in the late 90s and they were still there still wasn't anything that hit as big and as hard as slipknot slipknot was still influencing a lot of extreme music and, and and heavy music at that point and i really feel like this band has like a big new metal strain running right through it um that's not doesn't ruin it like you and i we talked about wicked innocence's uh what was it hypnotic album the other day uh worship worship i'm sorry worship uh album the other day and um i said i, I said the vocals kind of eh, for me the vocals aren't the thing with this album that makes it new metal. The vocals and Bloodgasm are like pretty through and through death metal. It's just they really there's something like kind of slipknotty in there. Something very like early 2000s new metal that kind of comes in and out of the production style sometimes, man. And it's interesting. Yeah. It's not it's not it's done well, I'll say. This is a band that I was very surprised given the name and the logo what I what I heard cuz it was very brutal. And like 
you know, you said there was those Long Island death metal influences, that groove, and then the the, the new metal parts even kind of come in and out, but they add to it in a way. There's almost a Mortal Decay kind of quality to it. Um, interesting stuff. Interesting name. Yeah, the logo is something. I feel like they could, uh, if, they, if they ever got back together again, they could probably sell, like, those, um, those like, uh, trucker mud flaps that have the lady on them. That, that's, like, what it is, right? Like, but like make that like make their their big logo like yeah. a mud flap for uh semi trucks you know not that any of this would have kept them from blowing up in like the 2000s new york death metal scene because there wasn't a big scene it was just kind of whoever was playing shows and out there a lot you know yeah and i do think that <laughs> it's probably just like a matter of you know, however they they sort of came to be playing this style of music like if you there's like a photo of them on like their metallum and stuff and like you look at like the band shirts they're wearing it's like nobody's wearing like you know like a devourment shirt or anything like that you can kind of see it's like it's guys that are all probably came from different backgrounds like uh yeah. within yeah. metal it's that that kind of coming together and stuff that neighborhood band where like yeah where like the one dude is into thrash metal the other dude's into hardcore the other dude's the other dude just plays guitar so he's like kind of there you know he's not really into metal like there's all those all those ca- cast of characters, man. I love it. This but, uh, this is an interesting local band, obscure kind of phenomenon you've you've procured for us. And uh, I I noticed I was looking up the town that they it lists them as being from. Scotchtown, New York, is right next to Middletown, huh. and it it had me thinking. I was like, man, I wonder if they're like going to those like Quinn's Pin shows when there's like a death metal show rolls through there. You never know, dude. Uh, you know, I don't really know what they look like, so I wouldn't be able to pick them out of a crowd. But I mean. You know, like I would definitely like it would be cool if uh, if they were still kind of around if they were pl- still playing and stuff like that even in in, in uh, other bands or something like that because the, uh you know they definitely this band had had a lot of promise though it didn't seem to last very long. Yeah, um, who, who knows, dude? Uh, and and I don't know if you noticed this, the YouTube link you sent me like forty eight hours ago for this band is already taken down now mysteriously oh weird i didn't know i didn't notice that which makes me wonder if like i don't know if you i didn't like it or anything but if you liked it or interacted with it somehow it makes me wonder if like a notification about bloodgasm popped up for the first time in 15 years or something and someone was like oh shit <laughs> bloodgasm still on my channel maybe i don't know there maybe everyone in bloodgasm opened a uh a law firm and they're like very adamant about going after people sharing their music for free they got like the uh the Lars Ulrich sort of Dude. thing against uh streaming music. They're like, you gotta buy physical albums. From Blood Gas yeah, there's that's why that's why they're actually their uh their value is is has jumped up on that Facebook death metal page you're you're on. Because <laughs> they're 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 dri- they're they're driving the market up man by, yeah. by canceling YouTube channels. You oh man have to buy it off discogs or you gotta get you're gonna get sued. Oh That's one boy! Way to promote your band. I got a coworker who went down QAnon. Let me sell him that one too, man. That was interesting conspiracy theory about Bloodgasm uh, from Upstate with their self-titled 2002 album, uh, which Tom, I might have to uh, send you a YouTube link. There's a few random songs you could still find on YouTube. Um, so good, good luck hunting on that one. Uh, and when we come back, I'm going to talk about something you might be able to find a little bit easier, man. But Tom, hit him with that Bloodgasm real quick. Buddy.
And we're back. That was Bloodgasm. Now I have a band with a somewhat more tactfully chosen name. Dave, I'm sorry for laying into that band so bad about the band name. Um, right, dude. That's right. I don't think they mind. We don't have personal allegiances to the bands just because we recommend them. Uh, but I want to talk about Abdicate from Rochester, New York. Dave, you alluded to uh, Rochester, New York having a somewhat bigger metal scene. Uh, a yeah. little, little bit earlier in this segment, and you are right. Uh, Abdicate is a band that was around in 2008. Um, I don't know that they ever went on hiatus or broke up, but they put out um, four full-length albums, the most recent being in 2018. Right now I want to talk about Forged in Rune, their first full-length album from 2009. It came out on Severed Records. Uh, shout to Barrett and Severed Records, another... Um, Long-time person that I've been meaning to get in here to to, to talk uh, talk shop on the Heavy Hole podcast, man. i uh, got to get him in here. But talking about this album, uh, shout out to these guys. Shout out to Yeti. I've met the, the singer of this band, Yeti, once or twice, who is um, hard to miss when you're up there at the local he's, metal scene in Rochester. You, you know he's Yeti? He's really tall, right? Yeah, I think we may have discussed this, this band once before. Maybe somebody else. Maybe it was with someone else. Um, but, yeah, he's a very tall gentleman. Um, very imposing death metal singer, uh, and, he, and he's got a he's got a great voice. That's one of the standout things on this uh, Forged and Rune album that I sent over to you. And I'm gonna say this about it: it's uh, very straightforward. It's not necessarily as tailored with technical precision and sh- and and shredocracy as your average you know suffocation album might be or Gorguts album or something. Um, this is actually what I, what I've grown to like about this album. I almost hear it as a little bit more of a grindcore album. Maybe if you remember certain napalm death material in the nineties, being a little bit more death metal influenced, um, this, this kind of, it has that very aggressive, straightforward in the riffing, the writing mainly, uh, uh, like no nonsense, no frills kind of vibe to it. And it's done in a death metal mindset. There are breakdowns. You know, not, I wouldn't say breakdowns. There are rhythmic parts, more mid-tempo parts, um, head-banging parts. But I would say that this all has uh, a grindcore energy, if if I want to be like like extreme noise terror, napalm death in the 90s, when death metal was a little bit more uh, uh, of, a, of a subversive influence even for those guys. Um uh, this the, I like to think of this as some sort of like a polarization of that dynamic of the death metal, the brutal death metal and, and brutal grindcore dynamic. And the vocals are monstrous, um, you know, not just in this guy's physical frame, but in his voice. He lives up to the name Yeti. Uh, he sound, he, he's got some monstrous growls. The only thing that I don't particularly prefer on this album is the drum sound. It sounds a little bit sampled uh triggered i don't know what the proper terminology is but it doesn't sound organic and live enough to my personal tastes that's not to say it's going to prevent other people from listening to this so that's kind of my take on it in a nutshell uh and dave i'm going to hand it over to you yeah uh thank you for introducing me to uh to this band i was not aware of them and the the rochester scene definitely did get a little bit bigger in uh in my eyes having found them out i really 
uh i really enjoyed this this was like it took me by surprise and uh yeah it, i i agree with you about the um it's like it's not technical or like slammy or anything like that but it has this like unrelenting quality to it like there's not a lot of even when there's like uh like the drums and stuff stop for like a, a guitar lead in or a breakdown or something like that it doesn't last that long like it it kicks back up again after like a measure or two instead of like some bands really drag it out so it really kind of kept you know kept the, the uh the energy going but um yeah these these guys were uh i'm a fan i think uh and i feel like the yeti's vocals i he uh sylvain from cataclysm sort of came to mind mm, uh, roar, yeah. just as far as like the <clears throat> It didn't sound like him, but he had like the same sort of like power and delivery style. You know, I'm not I'm not sure that makes like how how much sense that makes, but uh, yeah, no, it, it was like you could hear what he was saying, like not necessarily understand it, but like it wasn't like all muffled or gargled. You know, I'm sure if you had the lyrics in front of you, you could kind of make out what he was saying. Yeah, but, uh, I would definitely like to hear more of uh more of these guys' music. Yeah, well, there's three albums after this. This is the first album, so I'm gonna I'm gonna do my homework a little bit too because I didn't keep up with their material as much through the years. Um, but this is this is the first step, and we're gonna be back <clears throat> with some more upstate New York death metal in the future. I think, Dave, we have our path uh, ahead of us. <clears throat> but for now, Tom, any well, I, I'm sorry, Dave. Any final thoughts before I s- send it out to Tom right now? Which is abdicate forged and rune. Uh, I was gonna just briefly come to the defense of the drum sound i didn't honestly didn't really notice it <laughs> when i was listening to it i'm yeah. not it's not like something that, that i that i pick out very quickly but i think that being that this is from like the the 2000s that's like almost 20 years ago at this point i think that the quality of drum sampling and and things like that have improved since then so maybe back off a little bit give the guy a break you know it's hindsight is always 2020 when it comes to these things Back off, back off, Will. Back off. Always with the drum triggers. Always with the always with the samples. Always quantization, with, things uh, like that. Always, always hating. Always uh, this guy. If I, it's like if he could, he could bang, he'd bang two rocks together just to get fire, man. At the end of the day, this guy Will, he's living in the Stone Age, man. Back off, Will, with this, with the, the hating on the triggers and the samples. This guy in Abdicate, the drummer at the time, he was trying to push things forward. You know what I'm saying? He's trying to be the missing link. Um, no, all right, I'll, I'll get I'll get off it, Dave. You're probably right. You raise a good point. That wasn't that was kind of a very in between period, that early 2000s for the um, uh, the drum sampling. It's it's come a long way since then. It absolutely has. So we'll 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 leave him at this. But um, fair enough. Uh, and we'll ask Tom to uh, to bring in a little bit of that abdicate forged. So, uh, thank you very much to Scotty Heath from Tank Crimes Records for all of his insight and um, 
uh, kind of behind-the-scenes lore. Uh, make sure you check out all the music we talked about. Check those guys out on tour that he's going to be rolling around with through the country. Um, buy, him a, buy him a beer. Guy works hard. Um, speaking of beer, Dave, are you into that first beer yet, or are you still on the coffee? No, nah, man, I, I, uh, I'm actually out of beer right now. I got to go to the grocery store and get some more. I'm, uh, I'm slipping. I got to be honest. All right. I'm, I'm proud of you that you managed to go to the barber shop and not stop for a drink on the way back, though. That's progress, you know. Usually that's Thanks, usually that's that's reason. Yeah, I, I used to go to a barber shop down in, in, in Astoria where they would serve you like a they'd, they'd have a cooler of beer in the waiting room, so you could have like a beer or a shot or something like that while you're waiting for your haircut. Yeah, I, nice. I, I heard they do things like that in New York City. I'm just <laughs> I'm just a little little old farm boy out here in Suffolk County, Long Island. When when you go to the barber shop out here, you're lucky if they got a um uh a fan in the summer man it's kind of kind of brutal i go to a barbershop they just got like milk cartons for you to sit on man make you cut your own hair yeah <laughs> yeah i'm actually talking about my backyard growing up put a bowl on your head and make you look like mo from the three stooges <laughs> oh man i feel a little can you tell i'm a little jumpy from my first cup i'm having my first cup of coffee right now too man um feeling good maxwell house got me chilling um what else we talk about dying fetus doing big things with cruelty and um, uh, all the other bands are full of hell and Sanguasugabog's out there with Jesus. There's some good tours getting announced. I like, I you know, I don't, I don't always call it out on the show when I don't like a tour. Just the same way that we don't really like talk about albums we don't like and sit there and trash people. Um, unless it has to do with sample drums, then I'm an animal who needs to be tamed and, and, and forced back into my cage. Uh, um... But I don't like some of these lineups that come out with tours. You know what I mean? They'll have like a legacy death metal band, then like two kind of like metalish metal metal core death core bands. It's it's weird sometimes. Am I wrong? No, I'm with you. Yeah, like the um, it is like they'll use like the 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 legacy band as sort of like the anchor, and then they'll just throw on like whatever bands happen to have, <clears throat> have an album out like regardless of how the styles mesh or yeah i mean like that i mean i get it it's a big mixture i got you know i don't know what goes on behind the scenes it's a mixture of who's who's ready to go on the road who's not in the studio who's available and who works with what booking agencies and who plays ball with who? I mean, it's a, it has a lot behind the scenes, but it's just—it's so nice when you see a well curated tour lineup go out there. Uh, we talked about a few of them tonight. Um, talked about uh, Scotty. Are you familiar with that uh, that tour that's going out now with all the Tank Crimes bands, um, Dave? That we just talked about. Uh, no, I, I can't say that I am. Okay, well, can we you, did. Uh, What's that? Can you refresh my memory? Yeah, I was just talking about it with Scotty Heath, man. Ghoul, uh, Municipal Waste, Ghoul, Necrot, and Dead Heat are all going out on the road. Brain Squeeze Tour 2024. Um, start the day after Valentine's Day. So I'll, you know, I'll, I'll be waking up from a, um alcohol-induced coma uh, by myself. Uh, it starts uh, two 2.15 in Washington, D.C., and it runs through uh, 3.16 to Richmond, Virginia, going all over the United States of America. They're not they're not hitting New York. They are hitting Brooklyn, not hitting Long Island. Um, but, yeah, it's just a well-curated tour. You know what I mean, man? It's just nice. Um, 
Might might not have as many opportunities to go outside and smoke weed. That that was the one benefit a lot of these tours is like if you wanted to go see Dying Fetus, you had like <clears throat> they had some big package tours where it was like, you know, you could go see like two great death metal bands and have like three hours to smoke weed in the parking lot with like the other three bands that were playing. So pick your poison, you know. If you're a social animal, you know, maybe you want to be out there doing the whole heavy metal parking lot thing. Yeah, I think I I might pass on that. It's not really my uh those bands are not really my cup of tea besides like Necrot, but uh it does I mean I know all those bands are good live and a lot of people like them, so I think that they'll Ghoul I I would suggest well. I mean honestly, I would recommend Ghoul live to people who don't even like heavy metal but enjoy a good show. Um, you yeah. know, you want to you want to you know, kids of a certain age you want to take the kids to see something different? You know what I mean? You go maybe I don't. You know, you 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 got your boyfriend or your girlfriend. Maybe you're both into weird stuff. You know, you, you want to take them. There. I don't know. You know, depending on people's tastes. But Ghoul is a good show. It's a good night out. Um, they they do little crafty stuff on stage. They got characters. Uh, they 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 weave weave a whimsical narrative i love it i i enjoy ghoul live and i've 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 enjoyed seeing them you remember them from the razorback days right i do yeah when they first dropped man it's it's um well deserved i think in terms of work ethic but unexpected to me that ghoul is who they are now and as relevant as they are now and as big as they are now because I kind of remember them as this like obscure Razorback Records band that you know that no like mysterious band that people didn't know who they were and whatever and and it's 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 great that they've stuck with it this far. Yeah, I think that um Billy from Razorback really had a uh a knack for picking bands like that that like yeah kind of he he pulled them out of left field and stuff and they really like you know quality bands that with staying power, you know, I guess the other band I can think of is Bird Flesh. Bird Flesh was around for a while before that, but um, I'm pretty sure Gruesome Stuff Relish is, is still doing stuff up until a few years ago. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I haven't kept up with them that much, but there was a lot of those old Razorback bands do pop up, man. Yeah, he, he uh, dude knew what he was doing. Jesus I, Christ, what? Sorry, you're right. I just opened a page and a bunch of music started playing. All right, I don't hear it over here. Thankfully, it was scared the crap out of me. I... <laughs> was it? Was it your? Uh, did you finally? Did you finally download uh, um, Dead Speak off of the deep web? Like we were talking about. Yeah, I, I found the other secret websites that uh, you can hear their music on. That's that's where you can find the Bloodgasm album too, man. Um, oh boy, jeez. Uh, but what what are we talking about there? Um, I don't remember. I'm I'm still uh getting my my nerves back. Yeah, being surprised with that music. It's funny because I've been shocked in the headphones once or twice the last few days too. But luckily, it didn't go to you. Um, fuck. Hold on. What were we talking about? Uh, gruesome stuff. Relish. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm not even gonna edit that out, man. We sound stupid, but who cares? Um, yeah, gruesome. <laughs> <laughs> the Razorback. That's what I wanted to say. Um, you caught me off guard with that. Uh, I have been in touch. Uh, shout to Billy Nocera. We exchanged a message or two. Um, trying to set it up. We'll see, man. I, I you know, he's, he knows he's got an open door on the podcast. Uh, shout to Steve Eggs. Steve Eggs, we interviewed a few years ago of Pile of Eggs. 
Um, been talking to Bizarre Charlie Alien from the Earwigs behind the scenes, trying to set some things up. Uh, you know, I can never guarantee what's going to happen in the future, but I, I would love to interview these guys, and they know they have an open door on the show. So that 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 kind of you know Billy Nocera and his 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 label and his projects and that that whole noise grind scene that they're responsible for, man, definitely. Uh, I would love to 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 give them this platform because I I see little things popping up now too where they're starting to get their due. There's you know re- reissued zines popping up and uh you know it's it's, it's you know, people are starting to take note of that kind of like very clandestine DIY scene of the '90s. So it's good, man. If you can uh if you can if you know know how to find the guy that does like black mayonnaise, I would uh I would definitely like to hear an interview with that guy. Yeah, he's on he's on IG too, man. I gotta shoot him a message. Um, but yeah, these are all things we're working on behind the scenes with Heavy Hole, man. I got a lot of th- we got I I got like six or seven interviews in the bag right now that we're just waiting to drop too, man. I don't want to spill the beans too much. I want to keep people in suspense for every Friday or Saturday morning whenever we drop them, though. Um, that being said, thank you very much to Scotty Heath from Tank Crimes Records for sharing his story uh today um and his journey we appreciate it we wish him the best of luck with everything going forward in the future check out all the music we discussed tonight um even if you got to dig kind of hard for it uh just <laughs> looking for that that bloodgasm or something dave thank you very much for being uh, uh my 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 co uh, uh co-host um on on this journey today uh through upstate new york i appreciate it we're gonna we're gonna stay here i think we still got some stuff to talk about um any any parting words uh for the for the listeners before we take off man thank you for your patience (laughs) no thank you for your patience man um and uh i'll heavy hole podcast at gmail i almost forgot to drop the uh drop the knowledge at the end heavy hole podcast at gmail.com the phone number should be in the description where you're listening to this so you could drop us a voicemail um tell us what's going on in your area your area your area your your part of the scene uh tell us what's going on what bands you've been listening to what you've seen at shows what you like what you don't like give us a little scene report we'll, we might even play it on the show if we like it uh besides that Stay tuned. We got a lot more interviews coming this month, um, and I got a lot more recommendations because we don't do reviews here. Not even one.